Hey there, Damien with episode 52 of the Quantified Body Podcast here. This one's a bit of a test episode. It's a little bit different in format. It is longer and it is taken from a conference that I went to on the subject, on the topic of longevity and more to the point, life extension and the now growing market, growing industry around the topic of life extension. Uh, You may know that that's been a personal interest of mine for quite a while. You know, this podcast is basically looking at topics of life extension, longevity, performance, and general wellness, and how we can quantify and ensure that we're getting those types of results. So this is something I've wanted to spend some time on for a while. And you could look at this as an intro to the current status of life extension tools and, and technologies and where things are and what you could do an experiment with today and what the risk profile of those uh, tools and technologies could be today, or actually the potential quantified benefits, um, if any. So this is a test episode because basically it's based on some live videos that I recorded with people attending RadFest 2018 which was held in October in San Diego. And RadFest is one of the larger life extension technology conferences today. RadFest stands for Revolution Against Aging and Death and Fest Festival. So pretty much everyone who is active in this new industry, companies like Life Extension Foundation, the hosts and the leaders of this conference, Coalition for Radical Life Extension, um, investors, biotech startups in this new industry, which is called Rejuvenation Biotech. That's the name it's starting to get for itself. All of these people were here at this conference. So you'll see there's a number of different profiles that I interviewed and that you can find in this interview. So I think it's a good episode to get an intro into these topics, to start understanding where life extension is and you know start getting an idea of where you may want to look into more, learn more about one of these topics. If you want to go check out the live videos, those are all on the Facebook page. So you can go to Facebook and just search The Quantified Body and you'll find all of these interviews in the live videos there. I would encourage you to skip around this episode. It's long, as I said. So if there's a specific topic that you're interested in, you may want to check out the quantifiedbody.net blog and check out, as always, we have the highlights, the times, you know, who's talking about what subject at what time during the episode. So you may want to just jump to, you know, one hour, two hours in, whatever, like pick the area that you're most interested in first. However, going through the whole thing, will give you an overview of where things are at. So with that, just let me give you some brief intro into the topics and the people who are going to appear in this episode. The first one is Aubrey de Grey from Sens Research Foundation. I interviewed him in episode 14 of the Quantified Body Podcast, and really in this episode, he gives us an update on how life extension has moved from the fringe, you know, basically something that was looked at as a fringe science to becoming a new biotech industry, where you now have now have a lot of funding coming in and a lot of startups becoming active. And uh, as I said before, this is now starting to become labeled rejuvenation biotech. Um, and I just went to another conference on this in London uh, just a few weeks ago, where there were a lot of prominent people and investors and so on. So you can really see that this is growing into an industry all of itself, uh, more credible and so on. So that was a good discussion on the progress of uh, the tools and the funding and everything that's going to bring it alive and make it happen in the longer term. 
The next person I interviewed here was Liz Parrish from BioViva. Liz runs a biotech company focused on life extension, and she was the first person to undergo gene therapy targeting life extension, and this took place three years ago. She's known as patient zero in, in some circles for this reason. She just presented the results from her telomere lab. So telomeres are something that you know, people are looking at to measure how we age. And the idea is that telomeres get shorter as we age. So you can have an idea of someone's age, biological age, based on measuring the length of your telomeres. So hers were actually shorter than average when she first tested before her gene therapy. And now they are longer than average three years down the line using the same uh, test from SpectraCell Labs to measure that. So with Liz, we talk about uh, plans for her company, to support the development of life extension therapies and, of course, her own experience with gene therapy to uh, extend life. The next person we have on the show is Reason from Repair Biotechnologies. So this is one of the new biotech companies that has emerged and been funded in this area already, and they're working on life-extending therapies. He's also the author of the blog Fight Aging, which has been around for a very long time. I've known about this blog for a very long time, and he's you know, he's constantly been covering the science, the updates, and how things are progressing, the ideas, the tools, and so on. So it's interesting to talk with him about his own self-experiments with Senalytics, which you'll learn about is uh, one of the, probably the nearer term tools that uh, people will be using to aim to extend or rejuvenate themselves. And also uh, just an overview of, you know, where he's focused and the science he's covered and uh, some of the more interesting things. The next person in the episode is Brian M. Delaney from Life Extension Foundation. So Life Extension Foundation, you you may know of, is a company that's been very active in the supplements area, and they tend to have better formulated uh, supplements uh, than the average company, and they've always written pretty good articles with in-depth references and citations and so on. So Brian is sort of chief guinea pig for the Life Extension, which is is a new role he's taken on. He's been an advocate and someone who's practiced caloric restriction for a long time. So we talk a little bit about that. And then we talk about his new job with Life Extension Foundation and the things and the tools he's been testing, which includes Senolytics and Rapamycin, two potentially near-term tools that can be used for longevity purposes to try and extend your life. Um, So going to depth in both of those and his own experiments on what he's been up to. Next person on the show is Quantified Bob. Bob Troyer. So Bob appeared in episode 22 way back in a quantified body because he experiments. He does a lot of N equals one experiments and he quantifies those. So obviously he's a good fit for this podcast. So you might want to go back and check that. Um, Basically, we have a chat about what he found interesting at the RadFest, which of the life extension, you know, topics he's most interested in and also his other recent quantified experiments that he's done since we last spoke to him. And finally, the last person in this episode is Howard Chipman from Young Plasma. Now, Young Plasma is providing transfusions today of young blood, so blood from uh, young adults to people who are older, in order for them to benefit from rejuvenating properties. This was first tested in the 1920s in Russia, in fact, and since then there's been mice experiments and there's also been some Alzheimer's human studies which have shown benefits from basically just transfusing younger blood into people with older blood. 
So he talks about that service. He talks about the latest study, uh, Ambrosia, and how he got involved with it, and basically what patients are doing and and who's using this currently. So that's obviously you know a pretty interesting therapy right there. Also, as per usual. There are extensive show notes for this episode. They may be more useful than usual. There's links to everything mentioned in the show, including the studies and easy, uh, easy listed takeaways. There's summaries of the biomarkers, the tracking, the tools and the tactics we discuss in this longer episode. So please reference those, if, um, especially if you're not sure about anything. I know some of the topics get a little bit deep in this episode because you know, some of the topics like senescent cells and so on are actually pretty complex. So I think you might find some of the show notes useful to get up to speed there. Also, if you want to receive in future updates on episodes and so on, go to the quantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter. And from then on and henceforth, you will get an email from me in your inbox whenever a new episode comes out with all of the details of that episode. So you won't even have to go to the blog. That's it from me. I'm now going to leave you to delve into these episodes and get a pretty broad intro into the topic of life extension. The quantified body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. There we go. We're live again, and now we have, we're at Radfest again, and we have Aubrey de Grey sitting next to us, which is fantastic. You'll probably know, uh, if you know the podcast, you've been watching the podcast, that we spoke to Aubrey de Grey in episode 14, which was about three years ago, I think. So we're not going to go over all of that stuff. If you want to like get up to speed on the basics and what he's doing and everything, check that out later, and then you can come back to this. That's probably the best way to go about it. We want to talk about like what's going on now, what you've been achieving, and then how it's all going. So you know, first of all, uh, we didn't talk a lot about the SENS Research Foundation, how it's structured, and basically what the mission is and how it's structured to achieve that. Um, so I thought that would be a good place to start. Yes, it is. It's a good place to start for two reasons. First of all, just generically, but also because that's been changing over the past couple of years. So we are based in California, and we are a charity. We're a 501c3, if it's called, in the US. And that means, of course, that people can give us money with tax advantages. We also, incidentally, have an affiliate charity in the UK, so that UK taxpayers and indeed taxpayers from most of Europe can do the same. Mm. But our goal is not only to get work done internally and um, uh, on the basis of money given to us, but also to kind of be the engine room of the industry. And, of course, you might think, well, what is this industry? There has been this thing called the anti-aging industry for quite some time, but it doesn't have a very good reputation, and that's no surprise because it's fundamentally based on things that don't work, right, hardly yeah. work. And we're creating the, the new industry, the rejuvenation biotechnology industry, you, which will be based renamed on... It. Things that do work, that's yeah. right. Now, that has really only happened over the past couple of years. There have been investors coming to us saying, what can I do? You know, how can I get involved in this? But uh, I don't like giving money away, so please give me an investment opportunity. And historically, we would not have been able to help them because the projects that we were working on were at too early a stage for us to be able to make a case mm -hmm. that really joined the dots all the way to eventual profitability. Yep. That is no longer the case. Um, we are now up to about half a dozen projects that we gestated for, in some cases, several years, 
and that we eventually were able to spin out into startup companies. And every one of those companies is doing pretty well in terms of bringing in money, um, in some cases money that is, you know, the equivalent of multiple years of our entire annual budget. But the foundation is still very small. We only survive on something like $5 million per year. Some of these companies are getting like you know, 20 or more. And that's fantastic because, of course, it means the science can get done faster. It's also fantastic in the sense that we can focus on the projects that are lagging behind and that still have not reached the point where they can be spun out and have made it interesting to invest in. Yeah. So is that, is that transformed over the last three years? When did we really, do yes. It's, I mean, until, I'm going to say, four years ago, we had never done this. And not mm -hmm. only we had never done it. So at the moment, we're in a position where we've spun out um, six companies, I think it is now. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, we're also working closely with at least a dozen or more other companies. They're not spin-outs, but they're doing very closely aligned work, right. and the people are very much looking to me and the foundation as um, sources of introductions to investors, for example. Mm -hmm. So, um, for me personally, it's extremely gratifying. I'm able to maintain this position of influence in the emerging industry that I've historically had in the non-profit world. Right, so this is fantastic. So, I mean, um, so you listed several companies, well, you know, the 12 companies that you spent out yesterday and also the Sends Aligned. And how many are there in total now that you consider well, within, you know, the right parameters? Yeah, of course, it's a continuum. It depends yeah. how, how, how much we how talk to and so on, yes. Right. But, you know, at least a couple of dozen. Wow, wow. And um, we'll get into, like, you know, some of the specifics of that. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about is, you you know, back into... When you published your book, was that uh, 2008, the first year? 2007. 2007. And you published the seven uh, types of damage of aging. Right. And of course, I'd been talking about that for at least five years before that. Yeah. And last night you said that basically that hasn't changed. Like that's that right. model has withstanded time. It has withstood the test of time. That's right. Always there was the risk that there could be some new type of damage that had not been discovered. Yeah. And of course, there still might be. Mm -hmm. But every year that goes by when it's not discovered is increasing circumstantial evidence that it's never going to be. Yeah. And similarly, with regard to the therapy. I mean, it's very important also to recognize that we have not had any bad news of the form of, like, you know, this or that approach that we thought we would be able to take to succeed in repairing this particular type of damage is not going to work. Right, so it's not a dead end. Yeah. That's right. And that's not happened either. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so if you've got these seven areas, where are we making progress with this portfolio of companies now? Are there specific areas where we're making progress now? So that's the most gratifying thing. Really, all of them, the progress is really encouraging, much faster than it used to be. So there is, of course, a big spectrum in terms of how far along they are. In fact, there's always been that spectrum. So one of the areas is stem cell therapy to repair cell loss, cells dying and not being automatically replaced by cell division. And that's an area which was already sufficiently established when we began a decade ago that we have always deprioritized it. We've just done occasional little things in the stem cell area. Mm. Because other people, you know, with good money from other, other sources are doing it. So our best bang for the buck is not there. But pretty much all the other areas we have worked in. Mm -hmm. And um, we've done quite a lot. And yes, they've all moved forward. So the only one that is entirely within the foundation still is mitochondrial mutation. Okay. And even there, you know, it's probably not going to be all that long before we can spin it out because after maybe 10 years of working on it without anything really to show for it, even in the form of a publication, mm -hmm. we started making breakthroughs. We had our first real groundbreaking breakthrough publication two years ago now, and we've made massive progress since then. We are universally recognized in the field as the world leaders in that area now. 
and we believe that it's going to be ready for you know, for private sector prime time fairly soon. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can like you know, shut up shop and declare victory at the foundation because. First of all, we are obviously doing other stuff in addition to the research. We have this very vibrant education arm, and also we do a great deal of outreach. But also, you know, even though some, some examples within these seven things are already out there in the private sector as spin out, um, nevertheless, there are other examples that still need to be gestated for a bit longer before they can really be a value proposition. So some aspects of that, that damage, right, isn't being spun out yet. Well, so you said some of the mitochondrial mutations are in looked at internally. When you're saying internally, does that mean that you're funding internal research or you're funding external researchers that you think are appropriate, but it's internally funded? In that case, it's actually literally internal. We do, mm -hmm. we do the work in our own facility in Mountain View, California. Uh -huh. But most, and we have a couple of other projects in Mountain View, but most of our work, I think probably in dollar about two-thirds, yeah. is funded extramurally. In other words, we support professors in laboratories and institutes and universities. Wow. Okay, cool. Okay, so if we look at a timeline, this is the kind of stuff people are going to be really interested in. If we look at kind of a timeline of where these companies are and where you think they're going to get to some kind of commercial or, you know, even clinical trials or something that people could actually get involved in, uh, could you paint a rough picture or maybe like something sure, yes, that we can expect? Absolutely. So let's take iCore. So that was actually, I would say, out of all of the actual spin-outs that we've had, that's probably the poster child in the sense that it's the one that's... Um, attracted the most funding so far, and it's also grown in terms of the diversity of things it works on. ICOR was set up to work on macular degeneration, which is a, it's the number one cause of blindness in the elderly. It's an example of what we call lysosense, so it's caused by the accumulation of waste products inside the cell in a particular part of the cell called the lysosome. And we developed that, um, an ability to, a, a method to fix that, in-house in our Mountain facility for several years, we couldn't quite get there. We kind of ran into the sand for a long time and we were a bit frustrated. And one of our employees decided that he wanted to run with it. He felt he had a, a, a solution to this last problem. He was right, it turned out, healthy Moody. He formed this company, fine with us. We only took a very small nominal percentage of the company in return for the intellectual property. Yeah. And um, they've taken that forward, they've got good money um, in there, and they're hoping to be in clinical trials next year, or mm -hmm. possibly even by the end of this year. Um, you know, that's just one example. Um, another company, Covalent Bioscience, which is in Texas, it's a company formed out of the work that we funded on amyloidosis, which involves waste products accumulating outside the cell, especially in the heart. And um, it's a very important um, phenomenon in terms of mortality in the extreme elderly, people over 100. Mm -hmm. Um, that went well enough that the two main academics who were spearheading that work have now quit and uh, gone full-time with the spin-out company. And um, they are, again, happening to be in clinical trials in the very foreseeable future. You know, so it's happening. Yeah, it's starting to, to meet the road. Which do you think is going to be, the, I guess it's the mitochondrial mutations, which is going to be the last thing? I don't like to say. Yeah. I mean, I would say at this point, the mitochondrial mutation strand is probably moving as fast as, for example, the um, extracellular cross-linking strand, the elasticity problem. The elasticity problem is being spun out right now. It's like the deal is virtually signed. It will be out within the next month. Mm -hmm. It just kind of came together a little bit more quickly, but I wouldn't necessarily want to rank them in terms of how far along they are or how soon they're going to be in the clinic. You know, it's all neck and neck. And that's how it should be. Of course, we have always been very careful to prioritize the ones that are, that are most difficult, most challenging, most neglected, mm. 
they'll, they'll catch up. So when I was thinking about this, the seven types of damage, I assume, I mean, so, you know, uh, Liz Parrish, she's done one type of... Uh, well, two, really, I All right, right two, two types of treatment. So that covers two areas of damage? Kind of, yeah. Sort of, okay. You know, basically, you're going to have people which are covering some of the damage, but not some of the other damage, and it's a bit difficult to understand what that may look like, or... We have to keep our finger on the pulse, our mm. eye on the ball, so to speak, very carefully, because you're right, but... Still, the, the utility of this taxonomy, this seven-point plan that we have, must never be lost sight of. The utility comes down to the fact that for each strand, even though there may be many examples of a problem within the strand, mm. for each strand there is a generic therapy. So in the case of cell loss, it's just stem cell therapy. Now, of course, different organs have different cell types, and they need different stem cell therapies. So if you get one working, that's not the end of the story. But it is kind of halfway to the end of the story because the stem cell therapies, even though they're different, they have an awful lot in common. And that means, of course, that once you've got a couple of them working, then getting the next one working is going to take much less effort, much less time. There's much fewer unknowns. So, um, you know, we can push that forward. Right. And it also means that it's easier to make a case, whether to scientists or to investors, that this is something that they can make money out of in a time frame that they're comfortable with. Right. So in a sense, once you've made progress in one of these areas, you've got to clinical trials and you've proved that even if it's you know, uh, one-tenth of the actual mm. end output you need for that area, you've validated it, you've got credibility, and it'll be a and, lot easier. And let me also emphasise that you don't necessarily even need to get as far as clinical trials. Mm. So the strand of sense that has been most in the news in the past couple of years is definitely senescent cells, removal of senescent cells. Right. And in that case, the, the, the company that's really the flagship in this area, Unity Biotechnology, which is somewhat associated with that, we, I, we could not describe it as a spin-out from us, but some of the founders have worked with us and been funded by us. That company was able to attract its first seed round, a respectable amount, like mid-seven-digit money, on the basis of ridiculously preliminary data. I mean, not just that it wasn't clinical, it was only in mice, but also it was genetic models of mice that gave no particular reason to... Uh, expect that one would actually be able to create drugs. Um, it was even accelerated aging models, which are always unreliable. And they still were able to raise a lot of money. And since that time, as their data has improved, they're now worth nearly a billion dollars. So this is a big deal. And they're not going to start clinical trials until later this year. Wow. I mean, so this kind of leads on to, you know, some of the names you had in terms of the investing companies were quite big. You've got Juvenescence and you've got Andreessen Howard. It's a huge name in the VC world. And also Y Combinator. Has that made a difference? And, and why did these companies, you know, these, these uh, funders come in? It's beginning to. So some of the, well, really all of the really early investors when the industry just was starting to begin three or four years ago were private individuals using essentially, well, starting with their own money. Juvenescence is an example. Jim Mellon and his colleague Greg Bailey, both very successful investors in other areas, they decided to get really into this. Other just private individuals decided to start their own thing. It kind of wasn't so much uh, a movement at the investor side of things at that point. But then after a year or two of that, things started to change. So Andreessen Horowitz, obviously, as you say, an extremely established name in VC, doesn't do much biotech. Mm. And they still don't. They decided to get into this area just because there was this one company, BioAge, which again is not strictly a spin-out from us, but we work very closely with them, that was doing bioinformatics. So, you know, um, Andreessen Horowitz are very heavily involved in, that, in, in informatics in general. And so it was just something that they felt they could understand reasonably well, and they felt a bit comfortable with it. It looked promising, and yeah. of course they were right. The company's doing extremely well. 
then um, Y Combinator has, has got into this whole field very much more recently, just really in the past year. And they have, again, not had, had much of an emphasis on biotech until recently, but they've decided to do that. And furthermore, they've done it in a proper way. They've done it in a way that recognises that biotech just takes longer to get going than IT. Okay. So the typical deals that they would have had for IT companies would be you've got like three months to get to demo stage and then we're only going to give you a few hundred K to get Minimum there. effective product. Yeah. yeah, whereas in the case of biotech, they recognise the difference and it's an order of magnitude more, both in time and in money. Right. Um, and yes, they are very much, very clear that ageing is a major preoccupation of theirs. They um, want to get into into a startup land in, bi- in the biology of ageing as quickly as possible. They've already got a few companies, which again, of course, we're talking to. Mm. Uh, the other advice is they're literally on the same street as us in yeah. view. They're literally two blocks away. Well, that's useful. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you just mentioned bioinformatics, bioage. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about uh, bioage. I heard they're more of a stealth mode? They're not really stealth, no. Um, in fact, they shout about what they're doing okay. quite a bit. But what they have done as a result, largely, of being so successful in fundraising is they've been able to go broaden beyond the bioinformatics side. So Kristen Fortney, who started BioAge, is, you know, she made her name at Stanford in bioinformatics, but the predictive ability that she was able to demonstrate with her original very small team of people was so good, mainly focused on metabolomics but now spreading out to other omixes. It was so good that um, the funding came in that was sufficient to be able to do their own wet lab work as well to, you know, to validate some of the drug candidates that they were identifying in, in silica. So now, yeah, that, that, I mean, a number of very good lab scientists are working at BioAid as well. Again, friends of ours, you know, and it's an extremely mission-oriented company. You mm-hmm. know, they're very, very strong on um, making sure that they don't get... You know, diverted by short-termist investors into doing the wrong thing. And that's not true only of BioAge. It's true across the board of the companies we work with. Lessons have really been learned here. A decade ago, you had a few cases of very well-meaning, very smart gerontologists going out and forming companies and getting investment to actually take things forward, even though it was early days in terms of science. A great example would be Elixir Pharmaceuticals, started by Cynthia Kenyon and Lenny Garanti. Complete waste of time. But it became a waste of time because they got the wrong investors. Because they got people on board who were much more interested in short-termism and quarterly balance sheets than they were in actual, actual long-term success. And the whole thing ended up being a total clusterfuck. Right. That's not happening these days. It's not only because... Is that because you're advising? You're, you're... It's a bunch of reasons. Mm-hmm. Firstly, it's because the founders of these companies recognize that risk and they're very careful of what, they, what, what money they take. But secondly, it's because the opportunity exists to take money from people who aren't going to do that, people who really are high-risk, high-reward types, angel investor types who are very comfortable with long-term strategies, and yet who also have sufficiently deep pockets to be able to be the major investors for a long time. Yeah. Great. So you mentioned uh, bioinformatics, and I was wondering, like, how important is that to the overall strategy? Because, you know, we actually saw, like, you know, Liz Parrish spoke about some of the data that stuff they're doing, and I'm hearing more about the data. It's obviously something that we, we talk about here for validation and stuff. Does that also have to be an area of investment to push this forward by being able to validate discovery you were talking about with bio it, it certainly does, and it's not just validation either. So, um, well, I mean, a lot of it is, but the ship ability to make good predictions so that you don't have too many things to validate is, is the key, really. And so, of course, another great example in our space is in silica medicine, which mm-hmm. we also received a lot of money, in, mostly from juvenescence in that case. You know, again, run by a long-time uh, and very ardent um, mission-oriented guy, Alex Avaronkov, great friend, 
you know, they are using state-of-the-art machine learning techniques to achieve really fantastic results in terms of prediction of not only new drugs, but also new activities of old drugs that could be repurposed. And of course, the you know, path to market is, is shorter in that case. Yeah, and you know, they've, got, they've been able to get very good investment. I believe that, you know, of course, bioinformatics will never do, do everything. You're always going to have to do a lot of bench work, and everybody knows it. But it definitely has its place. Yeah. yeah. All right, great. So I'd like to pass a little bit on to, like, you, actually, because we chatted last time just about what you do. Do you do any tracking for yourself? Are you interested in any of these life extension? I mean, one of the things we've heard about, I've heard about quite a bit here is analytics, mm -hmm. because some people see this as something short-term they can do to you know, enhance their health span so they can get to these technologies. So um, what's your view to this for yourself? Are you doing anything or are you interested in or do you think it's not really worth it because you're just waiting for the big stuff? Um, so everybody's different in this. I yeah. always tell people, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say. And the reason I say that is twofold. First of all, I'm just well-built. I'm a really lucky guy. Well, first of all, I'm lucky in that because of my prominence in the field, I'm able to get for free the kind of really top-of-the-range analysis of my metabolic state that would normally cost $10,000. Um, and I've done that maybe five times over the past 15 years. What kind of analysis? Yeah, they measure like 150 different things in your blood and all manner of physiological and cognitive tests. You know, you name it, they do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I always come out insanely younger than I actually am, mm. like 15 years younger than mm. I am. What that means, of course, in terms of what I should do is I have to be very conservative. You know, respecting how little we really understand about metabolism, it's a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yes. Um, and so the fact that I actually, you know, eat and drink what I like, and I don't even do much exercise, you know, nothing happens. I'm doing fine, and mm. so I might as well. But of course, that doesn't mean that I'm going to do fine forever. I always have to pay close attention to any, sleep, any early signs of something going downhill. The other way in which I recommend people not do what I do is, of course, because of my position and my advocacy roles and everything, I'm constantly on the road, I definitely don't get nearly enough sleep. Right. And that's definitely bad for me. But I figure it's probably a net win. You know, I'm hastening the defeat of aging by a greater margin than the amount that I'm shortening my life. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's, re it's really interesting because I've spoken to a, a variety of people here and they have got very different strategies. Uh, so one person I, I spoke to, he's basically stacking everything that you've seen here. I guess like the, some of his markers, he actually isn't in such great shape, so the, the higher risk is worth it to him. Right. But if you're starting from a, a great place, then as you say, like uh, until they're proven, it's not worth taking these things. Precisely. And so analytics, for an example, you know, the removal of senescent cells is definitely one of the things on my seven-point list. Yeah. And so I'll definitely be wanting to do that at some point. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, it makes sense for me to wait and see and let these therapies become more effective and more, you know, and safer and more tested and so on. And that's happening so fast now yeah. that, you know, even one or two years down the road would, be, would make more sense for me. Yeah. Well, it's a very strategic unit. It uh, really kind of fits with what you've done with SIN's research foundation. So, just as the last thing, where can people, I mean, two things. Have you got an ask for the audience? Anything sure, you would like? totally. I mean, at the moment, as I say, we've got this burgeoning of the rejuvenation technology industry with more and more investors realizing that this is the next big thing and it's something to come in and do. But there is still this residue of projects that absolutely vitally need to be taken forward as well and yet are not yet quite at the point of investability, even from the visionary end of the spectrum of investors. And that's why the foundation still exists. Now, the unfortunate part, of course, is that your average investor is not terribly keen on giving money away. They got wealthy by not giving money away indiscriminately. 
and therefore, if anything, the versioning of the industry side actually makes it that much harder for us to bring money in philanthropically. As such, we are still way short of what we need in order to go as fast as the difficulty of the science allows. I think we could still at least double the rate at which we make progress on the hardest and therefore the most essential aspects of this work. So absolutely I haven't asked. I say, you know, anything you can do to help. We have a nice friendly donate button on our website, sense.org, and if you want to give us more than that, then you know, where, you know how to contact us. Other than that, really the ask is, you know, if you're not wealthy, or I mean, of course, if you're not wealthy, you can still give us $10, $100 a month, you know, these add up. But also, advocacy. Very, very important. You know, people who are not billionaires and not scientists may feel that they can't do anything, but that's not true at all, because the quality of debate, the quality of understanding and discussion of this area is still being unbelievably strongly held back by the desperate need for most people not to get their hopes up about this. This is what drives what I've called the pro-agent trance, the irrational rationalizations that allow people to trick themselves into thinking that aging is some kind of blessing in disguise. You know, I, I get so frustrated that people just refuse to open their eyes because it's holding stuff back. You know, that lack of enthusiasm is making people not support this work financially. And I, when I say people here, I don't mean just individuals, of course. I also mean companies and governments. So changing the quality of debate, you know, just as you're doing right now by having me on, the, on, on camera, you know, this is what needs to be done. And perhaps more of these conferences, more people attending the conferences, getting more involved, totally. more engaged. Totally. Radfest is growing year on year. It's a fantastic event. Mm-hmm. We, of course, also have our own event in Berlin every year, every March. And that's, again, you know, it's... The emphasis is a bit different, it's more exclusively science at that conference, but the crowd is the same, you know, the kind of connections you have, it's across the whole spectrum from the hardcore scientists who are getting the work done at the lab, through to all the advocates, the investors, and so on. Aubrey, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have you you again. Thank you. Want to go first? <laughs> we were just talking about how we were going to talk and it just failed. Uh, I'm Britton Schneider. Um, I work with Liz and BioViva. My name's Liz Parrish and I'm the CEO of BioViva. You kind of got know me or you should do by now, so I'm not going to introduce myself. So this is going to be a great little chat based on some of the stuff I learned yesterday from your presentation. Um, and just talk about what BioViva is doing and also what you've personally done yourself, which sure. is one, one of the highlights. Um, so first of all, just for the audience, because many of them probably don't know who you are and what you do. What do you do and who are you? I'm the CEO of BioViva. I'm considered the woman who wants to genetically engineer you. Uh, I want to create humans that are healthy and don't die of the diseases of aging and therefore bring treatments back to children who are dying of critical diseases now that will cure them of their diseases. It's a really good intro. Uh, (laughs) I've been doing it for a few years. So Aubrey de Grey uh, just called you Patient Zero, so you apparently have several names. Are there any others? Well, good ones. Let's get any any, any (laughs) bad ones. (laughs) I don't don't know of any bad ones, actually. I don't don't think that I get too much right now. Does Britt call you something? Does she have a pet name for you or something? She calls me, you're late. <laughs> okay. That's the main thing there. Okay. So what does BioViva do and what is its mission? 
Yeah, so BioViva is a bioinformatics platform now. So we've, we've changed uh, our gears. Uh, for two years, we tried to be a program that actually treated patients directly okay. with gene therapy. Mm -hmm. We're looking at regenerative medicine gene therapies, gene therapies that reverse the biological clock, gene therapies that create upregulation of regeneration in the body, uh, gene therapies that increase muscle mass for an aging population, and mm -hmm. therefore creating cheaper uh, cures for kids with muscular dystrophy. Yeah. So every one of the therapies that we talk about today, there, there's an aspect of how they can be used in childhood disease. Right. But we wanted to do that. We wanted to treat patients directly. But we found out we couldn't do that. There was a, not a regulatory framework for us to be a U.S. company and do that. But the most important part of treating patients is the data. What happened when a patient was treated? So we actually became in partnership with an exclusive uh, partnership with a company that's offshore in the U.S. It can broker deals between patients and doctors to do gene therapy, and we get access to all the pre and post data. We find out exactly what's been done to the patient, and then we look at the biomarker panel that we're developing with our bioinformatics program, yeah. and we see where gene therapies work and where they don't work. Mm -hmm. In research and development, uh, we are actually starting to design our first viral vector that will get multiple genes in at one time. So we've got a viral... So you are doing R&D Yeah, yeah, we are doing... And then you license that out, but you just don't... Clinic, you know, no, you know that the thing is, is you never want to fall in love with your hypothesis. So we don't want to be a telomerase-inducing gene therapy. We don't want to be just a clotho-inducing gene therapy, PCG1-alpha, FGF21, folistat. If you fall in love with your hypothesis, you're going to try to prove that it works. Okay. We're a testing platform to see what works. And we're going to bring other companies through that have therapeutics that we will actually get them their first human data. So why would we do this? Why would you do medical tourism? It's kind of a, a multi-pronged approach. Number one, you give patients access to therapies they couldn't get otherwise. And often these patients are in dire need of something. And the regulatory system and their doctors would just let them die rather than treat them, rather than take a risk because we're very risk averse. So number one, you're helping patients. Number two, you're helping biotech companies get the first data on whether their drugs work in patients and where they work and where they don't work. Number three, de-risking investment in biotech. Right now, you know, it has, biotech has a 94% failure rate through phase studies. Investors don't want to invest. But if you plop down the data on 10, 20, 100 patients and what happened, we'll know what drugs will work before we start to run them. Right. Do we think that drugs should go through a regulatory service? Absolutely. They should go through a regulatory service so they can be sold widely to a wider audience and help more people. Yeah. But people need access now. And the human model is the best model organism to work in to find out if drugs work for humans. Right. So you completely pivoted the company, right? So before you were actually developing them, and now you, are you like, just to get it straight, you're not doing any R&D in development at all, or you're doing a bit, and but mostly you're gonna be sourcing the R&D from other companies? So instead of actually trying to run one gene to find out how well it works, we use the meta-analysis, so it's called bench to bedside where we are doing uh, the development and research and development is the driver, the vehicle, what gets the genes into the cell. So we'll let other gene uh, companies and research institutions run all that expensive uh, pre data, but then we want to see what happens in patients when we look like we do so, have a So you're going to select drug. the most promising ones? Yeah, that's right. So the reason we would look at telomerase induction is it actually has decades of research done on it. Mm -hmm. Nobel Prizes have been given out, 
and fantastic, you know, very uh, inclusive research papers have come out. Yeah. Come out. Uh, Maria Blasco just uh, put out an exha exhaustive uh, scientific paper about how telomerase reduction does not cause cancer and may actually protect against cancer. I mean, these are the things that we need to see. But if we don't apply them to humans, they have zero value. Right. So basically what you're doing is, is you're saying the regulatory environment's not going to let us do any of this. It's very expensive to do the clinical trials. So we're going to let less risk-averse people who want, or maybe they're in a situation where they're at high risk of dying or high yes. risk of, yes. you know, they've got a very, uh, you know, uh, it's a very damaging condition already. And so it's in their interest to take a higher risk, mm -hmm. right? And so they can do it through medical tourism and then you can get the data and then fast forward and fast forward validation. Yeah. And actually, I think that our platform, in the next two years, we'd like to prove ourselves, and then we'd like to have the regulatory service look at our platform. If you, we actually ran drugs like we're designing to run drugs, this is actually what we want. Don't hide any of the data. Mm -hmm. Show the data. Where does it work? Where does it not work? That way, we have a clear picture of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. See, we already take drugs that aren't necessarily safe, yep. but we don't, we're none the wiser. We get a pamphlet. You get a bottle of statins. You get a pamphlet. But if you look at the Cochrane report, a statin will save 1 in 164 patients from getting a stroke, but 1 in 10 will get type 2 diabetes, and 1 in 50 will get dementia from taking the drug. We don't understand our risks to begin with. When we're looking at gene and cell therapies, we're looking at just upregulating a beneficial protein that has decades worth of data on it in a human body to push regeneration. Not only may these patients actually recover from their disease, if we're lucky, they'll be spearheading the technology for the future. Our risk aversion just like has developed so many myths around living as if we're not actually going to die, but how is anyone actually going to solve the problem? You know, taking a gene therapy is, you know, the type of people who, you know, want to buy an experience, but they are also health investors. They're investing in their future. Who, like, You've probably been talking to a lot of people who are interested in taking gene therapies. What what type of people is this? You know, just to get some kind of on the ground like information. I'm sure these kind of people contact you. Uh, what, yeah. what kind of populations are interested in this? So we get thousands of people who contact us and are interested in taking a gene therapy, and they really span the gamut. And and some of them, uh, it, it was excruciating excruciatingly heartbreaking uh, early on because we didn't have ways to treat patients mm -hmm. and we had people come through with sick kids and uh, who've probably died since then because there was no option. Uh, people with uh, muscle disorders, heart disorders, and various really sick people. But also we get uh, some pioneers, uh, some people that, you know, hands down would take any therapy to be part of the experience of, of spearheading technology for right, the so healthy race. people. Some healthy people. Like you. Yeah, so I'm not so healthy. Well, you know, if you look at biological aging, by the time I was 40, I'm not very healthy. Yeah. These therapies will be used in sick people. We'll see if we can regenerate a kidney. We'll see if we can regenerate a liver. We'll see if we can uh, create some more um, beneficial cognitive effect in patients with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. But then we'll work them back to people in less disease state, and pretty mm -hmm. soon we'll be using them as immunizations. But how soon that happens is, is how fast we start working towards yeah. that data. So, so what is the timeline for this this model you've put in place? Is it, is it just started? Is it 2019? You're going to have some clinics in specific countries in the world. It's run by this organization called IHC. IHS. IHS. Yeah, Integrative Health Systems. Yeah. yeah, so we're starting now. And, mm -hmm. 
you know, already uh, patients are signing up to talk to doctors. They're very interested in therapeutics. Uh, so we're hoping to start generating our data in 2019. But how clean that data is and what that data means is going to take us a little bit of time to generate. So we're looking at a huge biomarker set. We're looking at a multi-homic. Yeah. There's like four monstrous slides. <laughs> I, th I think I'm a yeah. data geek. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to pull from publicly available data sets, uh -huh. but we're going to be analyzing the first company in the world to analyze what happens when you do regenerative gene therapies in humans. So are you going to uh, ask the clinics to collect this data? Or because there was a very extensive amount and sometimes yeah. you need equipment like special you know, MRIs. Well, and we, we actually work with the doctors. So the doctors who are exclusive to IHS are actually exclusive to giving all of the data to BioViva. So, they, so that's in the agreement? Right, and there's protocols. So to every gene therapy there's a protocol, there's a list of, of markers that have to be taken before a patient can be treated. Okay. And, and it is uh, pretty broad. It, it but wasn't remember, all of those though, was it? Was remember, that... a lot of it is done in blood work. Right. So a lot mm. of those biomarkers come from blood work, DNA testing, methylation uh -huh. testing. Other, uh, other markers come from imaging. So imaging is really important when you're talking about brain health, when you're talking about muscle health, when, mm. when we're talking about whole body health, we want to visualize what's happening. Yeah. So you're going to basically standardize a definition of the type of data and also how to record it in some, you know, some Yeah, form. absolutely. And, but who's going to actually collect the data? Are they going to collect the, the blood samples and send it to a US lab or a, you know, a centralized lab? Or are there going to be labs all over the place, just the local ones? Or so that depends on what labs that the, the doctors work with, but they're all the, the big companies. You know, we work with generally the standardized like labs. Yeah, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, But we also work with some smaller companies that mm -hmm. have some protein uh, discovery uh, methods, you know, proteostasis. Uh, right, the specific the methylations. Yeah. yeah, so we're not only looking at the old biomarkers that we used to look at, C-reactive proteins and, and a blood glucose level, but we're mm -hmm. looking at these markers that will be really important important in five years that really will be more specific than the other biomarkers uh, in, in the coming years. And that's how we'll find the, the real true biomarkers of aging that can give us a close date to the biological age and what your due date might be on your body and how we can actually right. change that. But by doing regenerative therapies, we might be able to reverse engineer some biomarkers of aging as well. So it will give us a new view, a new insight of reversing pathology in the body and regenerating certain areas. So for instance, even when you're, you're young, you're, you're actually generating damage. Your cells are degenerating in a slow form way. This isn't just something that happens as sure. you get older. Your body is developing, so we have the illusion that we're not accumulating damage. But in fact, we're accumulating damage over our entire lifespan. We'll be looking at bodies, hopefully, with regenerative med medicine uh, in these gene therapies that actually start to restore damage. That's a reverse process of damage and therefore we'll get the insights of what that actually means with biological age. First we'll start pinpointing it back to a healthy body, a healthy what I call 1.0 body, but the 2.0 body may have different biomarkers that give us insight to how to adjust to what is happening in aging in the body right now in the 1.0 body. I'm not 100% following with this. Um, so. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> no, it's, it's probably me. So 1.0. Um, 1.0 is, is a human not... who has not been who has not been given a gene therapy. Okay. All right. Oh, so you're saying once you've had a gene therapy, you may not be 
normal, right? You might be something different, but it's also healthy. Right. You, you, Ideally. You, yeah. You'll be, or it might be healthier. You'll be regenerating. Well, that's what we're hoping, is to put the body Stronger. into a homeostasis. Right. Stronger, smarter, faster, healthier. That, so that's the 2.0. Yeah, that's that's any sort of that's any person who's gone through a regenerative gene therapy who has an upregulation of a protein that is designed uh, to actually reverse damage in the body. Okay, so I, so I right now, so I'm following you now. I think so. You know, say we are regulated, we have many detoxification. I it out. I, I went too far. <laughs> well, you talk fast, not as fast as Aubrey, <laughs> but uh, he's like he's hard to keep up with. Um, so, you know, for instance, we have many detoxification processes in our, you know, and enzymes in our body. You can upregulate some of those and then you could drink alcohol all day and not worry about it, for instance, like Aubrey does, or, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's one use of our time. Right. Well, I'm not saying it's the best, <laughs> uh, you know, but basically that's what you're saying. Like, we, I, we would I have these abilities. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for people enjoying their life and yeah. living the life that they want to live. And or go living to the gym an unlimited life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that was one of the things with my therapy. I worked out five days a week. I ran about 25 miles uh, a week. And uh, after my therapy, you know, I got on plane after plane. I had jet lag. I wasn't working out. When we did my MRIs, my second MRIs, I was really worried because I had not been exercising. But the muscle mass was bigger. The white fat was down. And my blood glucose, uh, my insulin sensitivity was up. Okay, let's, And let's, so that's right. fantastic. I did want to talk about this. Of course, I, <laughs> I, I did. So on this podcast, on this show, we're into self-experimentation. Mm -hmm. So you're a good fit and tracking data on it. So... You know, that's that's one of the key things but I wanted to make sure we covered all the business and what you're up to there because we're sure. also kind of excited about all the data because my, my belief and probably a lot, most of the people following the show which includes like VCs entrepreneurs and then just self-experimenters and biohackers and all those guys um, is that data is one of the keys to everything yes. because it will stop us running around in circles oh yes um, exactly. you know, and so why did we learn a lot about data mm -hmm. you know I mean mm -hmm. when we started this company I found an investor he said I'll invest in you taking this therapy to, to embark on this and show that we can reverse biological aging we had really big plans but we didn't really have a list of things that we really needed to do so all I did was a lot of blood work I did MR imaging than I did telomere length. But today what we know is there's so much more that we Right, so you wish you probably oh, more. Oh, of course, of course, but, yeah. but that's how you get there. Right. What's, what exact, what baselines That's why you when take? you saw my, my biomarker list, yeah. it's extensive. It's exhaustive. Well, because we don't know which ones it's going to affect. No, we really don't. And we actually still don't know what biomarkers mean that we look at now. So LDL cholesterol, right. you know, we, we've hunted it like yeah, a witch hunt. And yet people with high LDLs sometimes I have never have Never but I'm not, I'm not worried about it because well, my particle counts low. So, well, know. there's the group in Italy that have a gene. They never develop atherosclerotic plaques, yeah. but amazingly, they have really high LDLs. Yeah. And then people with high HDLs and low LDLs die right. of heart attacks. So this, it's a perfect example because this so biomarker is used everywhere, everywhere, and we don't even know what it is. Right? Yeah. It's called bad cholesterol and stuff, but we really don't know. So we need multi-omics. We need to look at phenotype. We need to look at anatomical, physiological data. Right. We have a long, long ways to go. So even before BioViva came along and started throwing regenerative gene therapies into people, we had a problem with biomarkers, mm -hmm. and we we're just pointing out that problem. Okay. Right, so you're going to collect a lot of data. You're going to play uh, how, how are you going to get the value out of it? Because there's a lot of biomarkers. Um, are you going to put AI on it? Or like, what are your kind of plans yeah. to leverage? Right now, we're using machine learning algorithms. So our computer scientists and the PhDs that are working on that are trying to collect all of the best data. And mm. they'll, they'll do a little bit of light machine learning as the data goes in. The most important thing is that the data is clean. Yeah, absolutely. 
So because garbage in, garbage out, yeah. we're screwed. AI can't solve a problem if we have no data. AI is really fantastic for old drugs because we have a lot of data on how those work. And it's helping us understanding protein-to-protein -protein interaction because we have some data on that. But regenerative gene therapies, we need human data. Then yeah. we can plug that in and we can start to get some meaning. Yeah. The microbiome, very interesting, changes as you age. If we are actually able to regenerate parts of the body, will the microbiome change? But we still don't know most of the microbiome. And we have we Well, have I can tell you I've done like 40 different microbiome tests and I've never got actual information. Yeah, Because yeah. you have to combine to it with all the others, you know, to get a real picture and it's AI that's going to... Well, and it changes it with what you eat, right? So... Um, it's up and down all the time. Yeah. And there again, how to identify what's good and what's bad. It's Still, so yeah, we don't know. know. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, I think we, we you know, we, we. There is a lot of don't know, basically. Right. So, you know, I, I think bioinformatics, it's interesting, you know, I, I was like, wow, like, you know, they're switching to bioinformatics, and I've been thinking for a long time, like, we need to focus more on that, because the more I get in, I've got into data just with this show and stuff, is like, really, it's not accurate. You know? yeah. A lot of this stuff isn't accurate. The more I've tested, the yeah. more I've spent on it, I'm like, this isn't useful. It's and, that, and you know, and actually, the arguments within the field. So, in 2015, I did the two gene therapies that we'll talk about. I did the telomerase induction, and I did the myostatin inhibitor. And immediately, people blew up, and they were like, "Telomerase induction?" Or they they were like, "No, you should have tried this other thing." Well, you know, we have to get out and try these things. Or you know, if, without the data, we can't say something right. doesn't. Could work. you talk about? I'm interested. Like, why did you take that decision to do it? Was it because you were frustrated the company wasn't making progress, and you were? Oh, no, no, no. The, the company actually was just starting. So in 2013, my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, I was thrown into Children's Hospital. I had been uh, volunteering my time for two years uh, working with stem cells and the advocacy and trying to figure out why stem cell, uh, uh, the, the funding had, had dried up and people weren't interested when it seemed to show such promise. So I had this sort of regenerative medicine uh, education that I was going through. I was thrown into this uh, hospital situation. Situation. And I started asking them, well, can you do something with stem cells? Could you biobank some of his pancreas so we can use it later? And they looked at me like, lady, that's experimental medicine. And they said, you know, people are, kids are dying here. Your son has a treatable disease. And I looked around and I saw that kids were dying. And it was so unacceptable to me. It, right, your point is if they're dying, let's do new, something let's riskier. Let's do everything. Yeah. Let's do everything. Yeah. And so I left uh, the hospital and I never really went home. I started getting on every board that I could get on uh, as far as you know, information board on the internet, looking at what was going on. And I found a SENS conference uh, happening in England. Uh, that was 2013 and I got on a plane and I went over there and I said, okay, what, are, what is what you're doing? How does that help kids? Because I was looking for treatments for kids. And so when, I got there, they said, look, we've got all this great technology, we just need funding. So if you look, I went home and I created a funding company. It was called Biotrove Investments. I started Biotrove Podcasts, thinking that people just needed education. I'd get a call on the phone, I'd get to go uh, fly around with fancy people who had a lot of money asking me a lot of questions about the technology. And they said, if you prove it works, I'll put money into it. Right. So I said, well, okay, two of my favorite things were telomerase induction and myostatin inhibitors because myostatin inhibitors were already working in humans. So I thought, you know, they'll like this. So I found an investor and I said, let's start this company. And if you want to, I would take these gene therapies. It'll be my contribution to the world. It'll be my contribution to my children. And it'll be my contribution 
to a world that I hadn't really given much back to. Mm -hmm. And he said, let's do it. I think this will work. And of course, we hoped to cure aging in one therapy, but we didn't. Uh, but we got some really interesting data and we found out, okay, now we have to build a platform to make this a reality, test every gene therapy that we can and see what combination is needed to actually achieve right. what we So they gave started. you your, your start, right? Um, yeah. So how, how long ago was this? That was in 2015. Right, so we're three years on. Yeah. Right. September. Yeah, that was, I took the therapy exactly in September. So yeah, so we exactly got, exactly yeah, three years well, the company was started uh, January 8th, 2015. The investor came in right away, and then we, it took a long time to build that gene therapy, and the gene therapy was delayed twice. So here I was ready and anticipating, okay, we'll do it. You know, we, we had considered treating a patient with it, but we couldn't find any legal way to do that. Yeah, how are you allowed to do it? But I don't really understand the regulatory. Well, there there is some loopholes and mm -hmm. regulations where if you are educated, you understand the product of your company, you can participate in the product if of it's your, your company. Personal it's company. it's not an actual law, but it's a bit of a loophole. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the FDA never. Uh, but you have to be owner of the company. Is that what they do? Yeah, yeah, and actually, people have looked at ways to to use that in order to sell shares in their company, so for people who want to participate right. mm -hmm. in what their company is doing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean. Spoiler, some people do that. <laughs> it's called making an educated decision. I'm a major shareholder in a company that's that's developing technology that will treat patients. Right, and you needed that credibility to, to move forward. I don't know if it, it offered us a credibility, but it sure ignited the industry. Yeah. You know, we, we were the first company to treat a patient for or a person, and in this case myself, for biological aging. Okay, so what baseline labs did you take? So we did all of the standardized uh, blood tests that you would get at your doctor when you're doing one of your Uber health exams. We did MRI imaging. We did uh, the telomere length uh, testing. Which company was that? We used that SpectraCell. We actually used both SpectraCell and LifeLink, but uh -huh. the LifeLink blood that we sent, they said they got it on the wrong day and oh, no couldn't way. analyze it. You know what? I was, one of my friends had the same, has the same problem. He stopped using it. Anyway. Yeah, I was I was really like, mm. you're kidding me. Right. Actually, they were our company of choice. So mm. at the last minute, we had to do a SpectraCell because they would take a 24-hour delivery at that point. Mm. And I, we had to get it in within 24 hours because I was about yeah. to embark on the test. Yeah. So then after... That's a shame you didn't have that. Yeah. Well, well, what is kind of great is after, one year after, I took another SpectraCell and I went ahead and did LifeLink again because they sent me a free kit because the first one got <laughs> messed up. Guess what? They had the same value. Exactly. They pegged, they pegged me at about 45 years old. So the same as SpectraCell? Yes. So the two labs coincided? They, they totally coincided. Yeah. So the third one that we did this year, we mm. used SpectraCell because it was the one that we had consistency with. And they showed that they lengthened a little bit again. We don't know if they lengthened all within maybe a... 18 month period and they've stopped or if they continue to lengthen and remember this is only my T lymphocytes so you know I can't tell you that my whole body has been trained right the test only looks at one specific yeah cell. and we know so gene therapy has a lot of obstacles that we have to get over one thing what genes do we need to use to create really healthy humans mm -hmm. the other thing is how do we target a lot of cells in the body without creating immune response those are two really big things. So, you know, a lot of people, they either go one way or another, they're like, oh, this is so great that you're doing this, or oh, why isn't this working yet, you know? And we have a ways to go. And so by, you know, analyzing this data in patients, we're not only going to learn what happens with gene therapies, but we're gonna learn about titration. That means the dose that you give. And here's a really interesting thing. 
hemophilia B. They just found in studies, if they gave 20% of the dose, they had a better outcome in patients. Completely right. unexpected. Yeah. We don't expect that with something like telomerase induction that's not shared outside the cells, but we can expect that with other genes. And I mean, that that's cost savings. What that means to you is a lot less uh, cost. There's a lot of these U-curves in dosage. I've seen that talked about um, in other areas as well. But generally in gene therapy, when we look at myostatin inhibitors with the primates, the more they got, you know, the, the more yeah. bigger they were. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's, but all genes are not the same. Yeah. Okay. And the other one you did was the MRI for the muscle. Yes. Right. And the myostatin. Yeah. Um, okay. Myostatin inhibitor. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. Where can people like follow what you're doing? Stay in touch with you, like your know, Twitter, Facebook, or your company. Or oh yeah, we're in several places. Actually, Brett probably knows. We're at bioviva-science.com. That's the website, and you can see what we're doing. We're we're going to be in October offering genomic testing, but more importantly, genomic counseling because a lot of people have already gotten their genes run. But what does that mean? And so we want you to be able to talk to live specialists. And then we'll be working over the next year to turn that into longevity counseling. We're, we're looking at the 59 genes in the human body that drive uh, longevity. And we, we want to see if in people, in their family lineage, if these are actually creating longer, healthier lives uh, right. by the upregulation of these proteins. So they'll come to you for that? So yeah. So you've got a type of clinic, just like a data service basically. Yeah, so right, so the, the genomic counseling and the, the genomic products, we're hoping to offer some of the methylation testing uh, that you can get from other companies, but offering it through our platform so that you have the availability to share your data with our company so we can solve the problem sooner. Okay. And then other than that, we're just analyzing data and doing research and development in BioViva research and development for the, the, large, the larger load uh, viral vector in order to pump you up in one treatment. Okay. 15 years give us. Great. So if you, if you had one ask, like last week, if you had one ask like, that would help your mission yeah. for the audience, what would it be? I would ask you to go and read some scientific papers. I would ask you to go look at what we've achieved in science, uh, look at model organisms and how we've extended lifespan. I'd ask you to look at organisms that are already in the planet uh, that have specialized genomes, the extremophiles, they can handle hot radiation, extreme cold, exiotals that can regenerate their limbs, the pentachromat species that can see in billions of colors, and I want you to get really excited about your future. Our life is code, and I think that we can modify that. First, we'll look for human health, and then we'll look to enhance your life uh, for where you want to live, who you want to be, and what you want to achieve. Thank you so much, <laughs> <laughs> both of you, Britt, also. Bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> See you guys. Okay, so we've got the lovely background noise, we've been running away from it, uh, but it's here and it's following us, so we're just going to persevere now. So I've got Dr. Howard Chipman from Young Plasma with me here, we're at Radfest 2018, and you know, I went to, um, well, there's, there's basically an exhibition here, exhibition hall with lots of companies doing uh, interesting things, so I'm going to be talking to a selection of these people that I find more interesting. And, Dr. Howard is one of the more interesting people we've met. So, um, first of all, could you just introduce yourself? You know, you just gave me some great highlights of your background. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's a pretty cool way to introduce yourself to the guys. My name is Dr. Howard Chipman. I'm the medical director of the Atlantis Clinic in Oldsmar, near Tampa, Florida. And 
I've been an emergency physician for many years and also done family practice and walk-in clinic. But I saw a lot of my patients were getting older and needed some other type of anti-aging treatments, so I started doing the young plasma treatments and um, that's what I'm here for to promote and also to learn about other anti-aging things that we can add to our protocols to help our patients stay alive and uh, healthier. And, and, and myself too, of course. Yeah. And so what, what is uh, Young Plasma in a nutshell and how long have you been doing it? Young Plasma is basically the blood minus the cells, which is the plasma, from younger people, 16 to 25 years old. The idea is to get the healing and growth factors that you had when you were younger and replenish your body with those for anti-aging and healing of degenerative processes. Right. And so you're actually giving people basically a transfusion yes. of how, how much blood? Um, typically, and we customize it for the patient, but typically patients get seven units of fresh frozen plasma. Um, the plasma comes from a certified blood bank, so it's tested for all infectious diseases. And this everything. is stuff you would get if you had an accident in a hospital? Yes, this is the exact same blood you'd what get in the hospital. relates to your emergency medicine background. <laughs> <laughs> Except the donors are young. Right, right, so you make sure they're young. So, and then you were telling me yesterday, you basically, you, you mix up these seven Well, actually, we, we just start an IV, right. and we just uh, run the units in like, uh, like an IV fluid, basically, okay. over about two hours, and uh -huh. uh, that's it. It's very simple, and... Uh, Famous. All right, great. Well, it was very interesting. And you said you should, you've got a few other things in, just in your background, I thought. Well, um, my goal is eventually to fly into space, and I love airplanes, so uh, I have a space training company also called Aurora Airspace, and we take people up for military jet training flights and also zero-gravity flights that we do for uh, uh -huh. microgravity research as well as uh, we've had artists go up and do zero-g uh, painting and... Mm -hmm. Cool. Things yeah. like that. Sorry, right, you got an eclectic mix of interests. Um, I, I like. That I just can't well. decide what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And uh, with the young plasma, hopefully, I won't grow up too fast. Exactly. Okay. So, and um, all right. With the young plasma, I'd like to give people a little bit of background where this came from if they uh -huh. haven't been aware of it. It's been in the press sure. uh, and stuff for a few years. So, could you start quick from a mouse study and then your brother's here? Well, I'll go back a little bit further. Yeah. Actually, there was a, a Russian physician, um, Bogdanov, in the 1920s who. Uh, started giving himself transfusions of uh, blood from young people to see if it would have an anti-aging effect. And uh, he reported uh, many uh, beneficial effects from it, but unfortunately he died <laughs> did. after a transfusion. What did, of, of what? A bad transfusion? Well, or? well, they're not sure because back then they didn't know about blood types, so he may have had a transfusion uh, reaction, but the patient that he got transfused from had a malaria and tuberculosis. So, okay, you that know, could have had something to do with it. <laughs> an interesting note, um, Dr. Boganov, was actually uh, a communist, yeah. and he was uh, highly involved with the communists of Russia, and he actually treated Lenin's sister with young blood. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's the first reported uh, instance that we know of in modern times of uh, people using young blood or young plasma. Um, after that, um, some experiments were done where they took mice and they interconnected their circulation system called parabiosis, where they took an old mouse, young mouse, stitched their blood vessels together so that their blood circulated freely between them. And what they found was that the, uh, the old mouse, his health improved. He became younger, and basically everything they could measure or dissect out of him improved. Yeah. And what happened to the young mouse? The young mouse? He went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out, and other studies have corroborated this, that not only is there lack of good stuff in your old blood, but there's actually bad stuff in there as well that actually causes damage right. to you. And if you take out old plasma and inject it into a younger individual, 
it causes damage. Right, so don't do that, guys. And if you if you do end up in ER, maybe you want to ask for younger blood. <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. Probably not. I don't right. think so. <laughs> well, typically, if you're getting blood in the ER, you're um, hypovolemic, you know, blood loss. So what you really need are those red cells to provide the oxygen. So, uh, so, you need the whole so that doesn't really matter. Yeah. Of course, if I was you know, dying and needed blood, I'd rather have younger blood. But yeah. if you need those red cells, it doesn't really that doesn't matter so much. All right, cool. So are there any like downsides? To this, or you know, you've done this yourself. Yes, so I've, been doing it. I've been doing it for two years, right? And um, and I feel the difference. I feel more energetic, more youthful. Yeah. Kind of, I find myself acting more in ways that I did when I was younger that I'd kind of forgotten. Just, just maybe. How old are you now? Fifty-six. Okay. Yeah, just like you, ways I, you go up. The I street. don't think you look fifty-six. Yeah, you know, I used goes. to. I used to like jump up two stairs at a time, and you know, over time you gradually get older and you act differently, and you don't really realize it. Mm -hmm. But after doing these treatments for a couple of years, I find myself kind of doing things and that I did when I was younger. Okay. What, what is your protocol? How frequently are you doing it? What dose? I'm taking seven units every three months. Okay. Again, that's not based on any hard science. It's based on um, the study that we performed, the Ambrosia trial, where we used seven units. That's the, you were mimicking the study? Yeah. That's a good practice. Yeah, that, and, that was, and that dose was come upon by just you know a high dose of plasma. Because we use plasma for many other things in the hospital and and whatnot. So um, basically, we just took the high upper level dose of that and right. do it every three months. Yeah. So you said you worked on the Ambrosia study. What was the Ambrosia study? The Ambrosia study was a trial where we took a, a number of individuals um, and gave them one dose of seven units of plasma, and then measured the biomarkers before and after to see if there was any any change in there. Mm. And well, the study's not published yet, yeah. and uh, so I don't have the data because I was the sub-investigator, but yeah. uh, uh, my understanding is that the amylase and the CEA showed significant improvements, and there were several other biomarkers. So there's a reduction in the amylase. Is that amylase, did you say? Or? Amyloid. Sorry. Amyloid, yeah, amyloid. exactly. Right. Amyloid. Right, amyloid plaques in the, in, the, in the brain. So how do they measure the amyloid? They, it's measured, well, they, they weren't measuring the plaques. They were measuring blood levels. Of blood them. levels of it. Yeah, they okay. sent off a, a huge panel of hundred different tests. Okay, and those were the only, well, the only things you know that, that came correct, back different. Correct, correct. Because you might have expected, like, more basic things like CRP or, you know, a lot of people get elevated as age goes on. Uh, it's possible, like I said, again, yeah. I haven't seen the data yet. It's not, it's Do you know not when it's going to be published? Yet. No, I don't. Okay. I keep asking, but I haven't got a straight answer yet. So <laughs> okay, so. we'll, look for, we'll look forward to that. But the patients that we treated in the study and the patients I've treated subsequently have all reported subjective significant improvements in their well-being and health. Okay, great. Um, okay, so now you're providing this as a service to other people. Yes. And uh, by the way, are you, are you tracking any biomarkers yourself? Have you noticed no, anything no, personally? Well, I'm not checking any real biomarkers. I do you know, routine labs upon myself, and mm. you know my glucose and cholesterol and all those things improved. But it might have been due to about changes. I went. To, I started going to the gym too. I figured okay. if I'm doing this young plasma, I might as well make the best of it, and you know, kind of do it as a regimen of improving your lifestyle. Yeah. I, uh, right, so you see improvements, but as with, that's, be, that, often, that often happens with me. I do two or three yeah, things at the be, same yeah, time, because I'm like, else. I don't have all the, you know, 10 years to fix these stuff. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna do several, and then I'm like, I don't know which one did, but something. The main thing is, the main thing I look at is, does it work, yeah. efficacy? And um, I think we're eventually gonna find a cure for aging, but that's gonna be a while off. So what we need to do now is, uh, stay alive as long as we can with the best tools that we have now. And that, that's kind of right. what my goal is, to try and find things that we have available now that we can use to 
keep ourselves as, extend health span. Yeah, yeah. Ex yeah. extend our life lifespan mm -hmm. until until something maybe something better comes along. Right. All right. Um, you said you're doing this now as a service. Yes. Right. Um, so, how many people have you had in your clinic? We've treated over a hundred people with okay. this so far. And uh, are they f like one-time users or are they frequent? Like, what, what's kind of the, uh, the well, way people are using this? About half of them were, you know, in the study, and they came just for one time. Some of them, but many of them have since come back. I'd say probably eighty percent of the people that do one treatment continue to do them because they. Are they doing they the free, a similar protocol to you, the free months? Some are, some aren't. I mean, um, some can't afford it because it's not. It's, it's right. It's, well, it's, let's, it's talk, let's talk about the cost. I mean, like, how much is a one dose? The treatments one are, time? yeah, the treatments are $8,000, and that's for seven units. Yeah. And that includes everything. If people want less units, we have a, you know, a prorated scale. We have a couple of patients that come every month and get five units, for example. Yeah. We have a patient with dementia and, uh, trying to see if it can help with that. Because there are some animal models and studies that show that it might be beneficial, so mm -hmm. we're trying to help this woman. So she comes every month and we give her five units, for example. Okay, all right, cool. Do you have any idea of the mechanisms? Like, it, it sounds like it's probably a way off before we understand what might be going on. I mean, there's or many, have, there's like, many, many things going on, um, and the details, mm -hmm. we'll never know exactly. Right. Um, basically, what we're trying to do is reproduce the young physiology, had when you were younger by replacing all those healing and growth factors that are present in young blood mm -hmm. and just basically replenishing them people who are older. Okay. So, all right. Great. And there's many different mechanisms going on. I mean, the body's a very complex uh, process. Mm -hmm. And I think over time we'll be able to better understand these mechanisms. Yeah. But I'm not a basic research guy. I don't have a billion dollar lab to figure all this stuff out. Mm -hmm. So um, what I'm trying to do is help people today yeah. and help myself with what we have right now. Sorry, great. I mean, so one of my first questions when, when I met you was like, how are you getting this blood? Is it legal? And I'm sure that might be a question, you know, some people are, are having their heads. So oh, what course. is the answer to that? Uh, it comes from a certified blood bank. So yeah, yeah. it's completely legal. Uh, it's, uh, we've been using plasma treatments for over 50 years in hospitals. Every hospital in every country gives plasma every day, pretty much. Uh, it's usually given as a preventative or to treat bleeding disorders and, and whatnot. So it's a, it's a FDA approved a treatment. treatment. You're just We're using just using it off-label, off-label yeah. for something else. Right. So, so there's no. So it's quite straightforward, really. Absolutely straightforward. Yeah. No problems at all. Right. And you're just saying, like, uh, basically, you know, you have to be a practicing doctor in the state. That yeah, you have to be a physician because yeah. it has to be ordered and administered by a physician. Yep. There you go. Okay. All right. Great. Well, so you know, that's that's young plasma. Um, the other thing I'd just like to, you know, a bit more broadly, what you're up to in terms of your own activities. You said you're going to the gym and, you know, you're tracking markers. Mm -hmm. What are you doing in terms of your own, you know, health and life extension? Um, I'm using young plasma. Yeah. I'm also taking metformin as well. Oh, okay. It's a diabetes drug. Seems to be pretty good evidence now showing that it's, um, it's helpful. They did a study where they took people who were diabetics and put them in metformin and measured their incidence of heart attacks and strokes. And they actually had lower incidence than non-diabetic people who were yeah. not on the medication. So I think metformin's kind of a no-brainer, so it's probably a good idea to take yeah. it. So you didn't have, did you have raised glucose or anything like that, or you're just taking it for the longevity? Um, my, my hemoglobin A1C, which measures your sugar control over a period of time, was, was, was borderline. It wasn't more, diabetic. More six or it was like 5.7 or okay. something like that. I used to joke and tell people I was... Uh, one donut away from being <laughs> right, right. borderline, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, it's all back to normal now. Where's it at? Five point. I don't remember what it was last, but it dropped. It dropped back 
Okay. I mean, it was almost in the abnormal range, and now it's yeah. well in the normal. So you think that might be the metformin? Uh, did you get any well, actually, I, some people... I took. The, I, I tested it before I started the metformin. Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah, so I just started. I haven't. I haven't checked my blood. I just started on the metformin recently. Right. Okay. Right. Some so people did have it's, some GI. It's probably the young plasma in your exercise. Yes. Blood. Yes. But the metformin will bring it even lower. But uh, mm. sorry, what were you asking about the? Um... <laughs> Skip, skip my mind there. This is the problem with life. <laughs> I got into what you were talking about. Oh, you're asking about. me what I do? Oh, I guess uh, other treatments. So I take, personally, I take um, metformin, I do the young plasma, I take an aspirin a day, that's kind of a no-brainer. Big aspirin. Um, I also take cholesterol medication, I take a statin. There's some studies showing... Are you concerned about the potential negatives on that? Because, like, some of those... I don't see problems with statins that much. Yeah. It's overblown. Um, a lot of my patients are, you know... 400 pounds or cholesterol through the roof. Oh, they can't take a statin. I, mean, I do not see much problems with statin. Rarely people get some muscle pain or something and you have to stop it. Right, some, like people, like fiber, right? some people it will uh, raise their liver enzymes slightly. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, well, the, the things I've, I've, I've seen were as potential uh, interactions with mitochondria. And I, was one of, I think I was uh, thinking that might be the connection with the muscle pain, the fibromyalgia. It's possible, there, right? but I don't see too many side effects from it. Okay. Well, people don't have any problems at all. Yeah. So, so I take that because my cholesterol was a little bit high, and again, there are studies suggesting that even normal people take statins significantly reduce their risk of heart attacks and strokes and right. stuff like that. And right. my father had coronary artery disease, so trying to. You 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 were focused on that one. Yeah. But my dad didn't believe in eating vegetables. Oh right. <laughs> he lived to be ninety. He would have gone along. Have you heard of the the carnivores, the zero carb? There's a whole tribe of them on the internet now. Really? They just eat pure meat. Yeah, that's okay. a thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, great. So you're exercising, you're taking metformin, baby aspirin, and you're, quite, you're doing quite a range of things. I mean, and a statin. Yep. Yeah, and a statin. Yeah. All right. That's that's quite. A, a... And the other thing I'm lo looking into is rapamycin as well. Okay. I've seen some potentially good studies and evidence on that. Uh, it is immunosuppressant, but some studies show if you take it once a week, you don't get the immunosuppression, but you still get the anti-aging effect. So I have a couple of my Young plasma patients um, that have dementia, I have them on rapamycin. Oh, really? Is it is it quite expensive, or what's it? It's that? not. It's it's not cheap, but it's not a very it's not very expensive. Right. It's so not you, super, and you're only taking it once a week. How much would it cost on a month basis, for example? And then just throw a number yeah. out, like fifty bucks or hundred bucks oh, or something. Oh, yeah. So it's really not. Yeah, it's yeah. not like a. It's not cheap, but it's not like a. Well, that's pretty cheap. I mean, if it has. Well, it's not effects. a four-dollar Walmart prescription. But no, but for yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not expensive. Yeah. It's not expensive. It's been out for a while, uh -huh. um, and uh, that's something I'm not taking, but may consider taking soon because it looks like it does happen. And what will expensive. lead you to the decision to take that or, or not? Maybe I'll see how my patients do on it. Okay, <laughs> guinea pig. The guinea pig approach. Well, usually I use myself as the first guinea pig. Yeah. <laughs> That's good to know. Okay, well, you know, it's been great to chat with you about all of this. Is there anything we've missed? Uh, that I can think of. I think you asked me to give my contact yeah, yeah, information. Exactly. Um, um, so, you if anybody has any questions, um, they can contact me at any time. Um, I'm at the Atlantis Clinic in Oldsmar, Florida. That's next to Tampa. Our website is young-plasma.com. And uh, if anybody wants to call me for a consultation, I'll give you my cell phone number, 813-476-2321. If you have any questions uh, about young plasma or any other anti-aging, I'll be glad to answer for you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great to have you here. Nice talking with you. Hey, we're here with our second interview. And there's a little segue here, actually. We happen to have one of the guys who's using 
Young Plasma. Young Plasma, from which I didn't know. Dr. Howard Shipman. I got that, uh, what was it, six, seven, eight weeks ago. And I didn't know what to expect. I, I read some of the research results that, are, that there aren't too many. And there's a lot for umbilical plasma, which is really young plasma, but for young, less young plasma, there isn't a lot of results out there. But yeah, aren't a lot of results. But but I, for theoretical reasons, I expect there to be some benefit because I'm 55 and the plasma comes from some, you know, between the age of 16 and 25. And what amazed me was, and I did some before and after biomarkers and saw small changes, but it's hard to know because I'm always changing my diet and exercise routine, so I can't really say much about that. But what was amazing was the subjective effect, which sadly didn't last too long, but for about 36 hours, I was super happy. It was, it was amazing. What does it feel like to be super happy? Well, it, it just, you know, I'm, I have sleep problems and, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be, and I, I think I do have a lot of energy and I'm in pretty good shape, but I walked towards my car from the clinic after having a plasma. During it, I had, you know, some people get hives and I had some Benadryl. Yes. So I was a little tired from Benadryl, but that had worn off. And I got my car, turned on the radio, and the music sounded more beautiful. It didn't matter if it was, you know, ABBA or Beethoven. The whole thing was the, from the bass to the Life was more beautiful. Yeah, it was amazing. There was more colors in the world. Yeah, it was incredible. And driving across the Everglades and it just, wow. This Sounds is a bit psychedelic. It, it was like <laughs> almost, almost. I happened to be a bird watcher and I was, I mean, you can fool yourself, of course, into, uh, you know, imagining the experience is better than it is. But so I'm looking at all these passing um, raptors and sort of identifying them really quickly as if my vision were better. I knew, obviously, my vision was not better. But anyway, so for about a day and a half, I really felt um, physically, I felt, I mean, people people say I had more energy, and that's just such a stupid marketing term, but I really did have more energy. And I slept better that night, which is yeah. unusual for me. Mm -hmm. I normally have to take sleep meds, um, which, is, which is not good. Um, and then the next day I woke up and I felt amazing. I did, I did, this is one slightly more objective measure. I do uh, decline push-ups and, and I, I try to, I change my diet and I try to see if it's going to have an effect. So I measure the height of my feet on the chair exactly. It's 47 centimeters, arms is a certain distance apart. And I could do about 15% um, more that morning. I was able to, so how many? Uh, about, the, let's see, normally it would be low 40s. It was somewhere around 50, I think. But you um, just push to uh, max, max. That was just max, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, max, max that out. exhaustion, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and unfortunately, then it, the the subjective effect and partially objective. And the decline as well did that change over that, the that next week? It did start to go back to normal, um, and then after about a week. So, so the thirty six hours was this amazing experience, and then it started to fade, and within five to seven days, I felt like I was back to normal. So, when did you do that? I can't remember exactly. It was something like maybe two months ago, okay. six, seven weeks. And you just did it once? Right? Just once, although I'm going to do it again in a couple of weeks. Okay, so have you got a plan? Are you going to like stick to it? Or just well, it's, it's unfortunate. It's, 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 it's a trial and go? It, uh, here's what I would say. If money were no object, and it is an object with me, alas, uh, but if money were no object, I felt so good, I would do this every two or four days. That's how good I felt. Yeah. Um, but it's just too expensive, and and Dr. Trippin knows that. It's it's you know he would love to bring the cost down, but it's very he's selected. Um, he's got a contract with the hospital. Uh, sorry, with the blood bank. That's which was hard to get. That enables him to buy small quantities of, right. of agent. That's yeah, bad. I think he's going to be yeah limited. Um, he was telling me it was quite tricky to yeah. get that in place. Yeah. yeah. So I would love to do it every few days. It just that's how good it felt. But it's just impractical. Okay, now Brian, M. Delaney. <laughs> Let's introduce you. Who are you? What do you do? 
I am currently the president for the Society for AIDS Reversal, which is a group that Bill Falloon founded. Um, Bill? Bill Falloon of Life Extension. The, the, uh, one, Life Extension one of the founders Foundation. of Life Extension, Extension Foundation, a supplement maker. Yeah. Exactly. And he put me in charge of it. And what our goal is, there are lots of people, fortunately, more and more all the time, working on finding uh, cures for aging, or at least treatments uh, to reverse parts of aging. And it's great that lots of money is coming in from increasingly conventional sources. I mean, Jim Mellon, for example, a British billionaire, was a conventional, uh, very good, but still more or less conventional investor. And he slowly started turning towards biology, and then he has now turned towards anti-aging. Partly because I'm sure he's got charitable motivations, and he wants to save himself and his immediate family, um, but also because he's realized it's a great investment. So lots of money is going into anti-aging. but. Typically, this is going to result in cures or effective treatments maybe a decade from now. And the typical drug development path takes that long, maybe seven years, maybe 15 years. What, what we're trying to do is find what one could describe as the low-hanging fruit of age reversal treatments. That's not entirely accurate because that suggests it's easy to pluck. But it's more, and it's not always easy to pluck, but it's, you can pluck it soon. So this would involve things that have been investigationally orphaned because uh, there's no easy way to make a profit from them, for example, like metformin. That's been studied for a long time for diabetes, of course, but now there are people trying to raise money for um, various trials, uh, uh, near know, of course, um, to try to test it uh, uh, in humans uh, as an anti-aging treatment. Um, but how do you make a profit from a drug like metformin? Um, it's not so easy. You can do it as a clinician, but that's just the kind of patient fee. So it's not going to be too profitable. Right, because the patent ran out long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then rapamycin is another example, um, and uh, of course, synolytics. Now that's the category of synolytics. These are these are substances that will uh, destroy um, senescent cells, these zombie cells that skew out uh, injurious signaling molecules. Um, and so we get the idea is we accumulate senescent cells as we age, and it's the signals they're sending out, or the metabolizing, whatever they're sending out, which is damaging and accumulates over time, correct? That, that's exactly right, and, and worse still, these senescent cells can turn other non-senescent cells into senescent cells. So they almost is like The Walking Dead, the silly TV show, where zombies can turn non-zombies into zombies yeah. by just being near them and getting sort of right. biting them, metaphorically speaking. So it's great to eliminate these um, if, if we can do it safely. Uh, that's sort of a big if, some would say. But the category of senolytics spans both the traditional drug development path. Uh, so senolytics are things that kill senescent Yeah, yeah. Seno from the Greek, old, um, lytic lysis, you know, sort of split apart, break. So yeah, th th that's what senolytics do. And there are all kinds of them. Um, and these are compounds, molecules? Yeah, and even now there are new strategies uh, using enzymes, but the, but the standard approach that has existed among the now big pharma, but also the stuff that we're trying to find, um, involves uh, either something that, like natural substances, like quercetin, or bromongamine, uh, or fusitin, or old cancer drugs that can be repurposed, like desatin. So what's been tested in rodents several times now is specifically the combination of desatinib and quercetin. And this, this is a word that is often abused, synergistic, but it turns out it's correct here. You put them together and the effect is more than the sum of the individual effects of the two. Right. And what was seen in the rodents was, there. I don't think there's been a lifespan study done yet, or even underway, but um, 
regression of, uh, of plaque, of uh, atherosclerosis, for example. Regression? Yeah, the actual regression, um, which is astonishing. Right. We normally think you can't do. Teen Ornish, I think, has shown that a radically low-fat diet by other aspects program, meditation, mm -hmm. exercise, can, can regress a bit, actually. But aside from that, it's, it's really hard. Maybe, is that with, how, how do they measure that? Um, I think it was uh, just uh, x-rays. Calcium just, score? With, with the rodents? Um, I, I think they actually just looked. They just x-rayed it. Um, I, think, I think. I'm not sure. There were actually two studies, I believe, that um, showed that. So when you say you're going about looking for these uh, compounds, what does that actually mean? I mean? Are you looking for the research? Are you talking to people? Like... I, well, in, in cases where... Um, in cases where, if we're talking about synolytics alone, but this is the same strategy for lots of other approaches. Right, you're doing several areas. This is just one. Maybe this, this is one you're focusing on at the moment? Or? It's one I'm focused, it's the, I'm focusing on many, but it's one that I'm particularly interested in because I think we can, we can actually save people's lives now mm -hmm. with synolytics. I'm, I'm convinced of that. I'm trying to get my mother to try this. Um, and she's a little scared because Dizatinib is a cancer drug. And if you Google it, you see the side effects. That's from people taking it daily for months who are really sick because they have cancer and are taking other drugs. Anyway, my approach is partly I just read research and, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, my training is in the humanities, my formal academic training, but I've, I've gotten up to speed you know, as fast as I can in the research. So I, try to, I try to make executive decisions about what areas our group needs to focus on and then I contact the real experts, which I'm not, and try to form collaborations and try to see if what they're doing in researching uh, quercetin alone or in combination with Zazen or something else is worth funding. And so then we try to find funding. We might provide it ourselves. Bill Falloon has funded lots of projects. He's incredibly generous. Or we find, and or we find other people who want to fund some of this research. And then I go to conferences and, I mean, conferences, I mean, the talks are always great, um, but it, you go to the poster presentations and you find some mad scientist graduate student, you know, at the University of Lund in southern Sweden, he's got some cool idea, and yeah. it may be something that hasn't been published yet. And right, that's right. what I really want to do, is I want to find these things that no one knows about. Yeah. So just, just for the people out there, posters at conferences are typically, like, basically studies in progress, or maybe just finished by PhD students or something, like maybe it's just part of their PhD. Um, so they're not going to do a full talk on it, but uh, they'll have this poster explaining, you know, their whole study and what they found or their finding. Um, you know, so I actually have PhDs working for me who, like, present this kind of stuff at conferences. So it's a way to find the edgier, earlier stuff, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, so and then um, and then there are uh, small startups, or you could almost call them pre-startups. These these scientists with ideas who are sitting somewhere. There's a there's a guy Harold Katcher, who's actually an American, but he's got a collaboration with some people in Mumbai, and that's where he spends about half the year. Um, and at this point, I can't unfortunately talk about much of his research, but I can talk. They, they do have some. They have a polyverbal. Um, formulation that has got some amazing results that make it look like it does what this calorie calorie restriction diet does, which is to apparently slow aging even in humans, according to certain biomarkers, but certainly in rodents that, that research has been done for a century. Um, and they have some other amazing products and they're forming so it's like a company. A calorie restriction mimetic. Yeah, possibly possibly even even more. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's not it's not clear yet, but um, so people like that I try to identify, and then you know it may be that that would be a case where if they're forming a 
a uh, startup of that they're working for investors as opposed to funding um, from uh, charitable sources uh, who just want to give away the money to help the research, then I might connect them with investors who want to help actually found the company or the company's already started to help, help it grow. So it's your goal is basically to find opportunities and help push them along. Like yes. help them become, you know, help them fund, like give, give them what they need to grow and to make more progress faster, accelerate faster. them. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really the key. Because lots of people, if you don't add that part about the time scale, that we're really focused on the short term. I, the, we had a, the, uh, a group that was uh, named previously the Society for the Rescue of Our Elders. Um, a, a kind of long and quixotic name, but the, the concept was, it was based on this group, the name itself, this group in Holland that existed. Two and, a half, two and a half centuries ago, where people, uh, people would fall into canals and drown, and it was discovered you could pull them out if you did it quickly enough and save them. So it was the Society for um, the Rescue of Drowned Persons. The idea was there are people like my parents who are about 83 uh, who don't have a lot of time left. Uh, my dad's in good shape, but my mother really is not. And these, you know, Jim Mellon is doing this amazing work, juvenescence, but a lot of what he's investing in is not going to come in time for my mother, probably not even my father, who's still in good shape. So the idea with the Society for the Rescue of Our Elders is that we, we want to, I, I thought of it internally as the Society for the Rescue of My Mother. Right. I, I just, th th that's, that is what really motivated That gets you up in the morning. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's really, really trying to find treatments that can be made available in a very, very short time frame. Yeah. Um, if you met my mother, you'd think she's, if you saw her sitting down, she's sharp, but if you saw her walk, you realize she may not have a lot of time left. So so I really, that's, that's it actually does motivate me. That, that's, that's part of why I, I had a fine life teaching philosophy in Sweden, and I gave that up entirely to work with Bill, because I, I really want to. Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really curious. How did you, how did you get involved in this? Well, I, life extension itself, I was involved in via the Calorie Restriction Society. And that, okay. that goes way back. I was, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I, I was making money doing other things. Um, uh -huh. I was in graduate school so you as a philosopher. calorie restriction? For a long time. I've gone, I've gone at least half often for reasons I can explain in a moment. But what happened was in a long time ago, 1992, um, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, this inflammatory bowel disease. It, it, was, it was not clear at first. We thought it might be food poisoning. It wasn't clear. But and until that point, I really ate horribly. Um, I exercised a lot, and I had this notion, like a lot of people do, that the virtue of exercise can make up for the vice of bad eating, no matter how badly you eat, and that's not true, of course. Um, it helps to exercise, but you have to eat well as well. Anyway, so um, back then, you could research online as easily, so I went to the library, medical library, um, I was in grad school uh, in philosophy, but I'd go to the medical school and read about nutrition, and that's when I found about Roy, Roy Walford's work uh, on calorie restriction. Right. And I called him up and uh, said, why aren't this looks miraculous. What, why aren't people, human beings, trying this? And he said, well, I just, I've just written two books trying to get people to do it, and a few people are, but let's start a nonprofit. And so that was my okay. so the you beginnings started. of my interest in life extension. But back then, mm -hmm. because I was so focused on things one can do now, then as now, like, and then it was only CR that really, I mean, you know, vitamins could help with certain disease states, but with aging itself, it seemed like CR was another thing that one could do. So I, I did that, but meanwhile, I'm in graduate school, that was sort of my, my main uh, way to make money, not much. Um, and then I sort of accidentally moved to Sweden 18 years ago and continued making money, uh, teaching a bit, and I had a translation company, all the while trying to keep the CR society going. But what happened about seven, eight, nine years ago is that it, it, there really were 
better options or options other than CR, calorie restriction, that seemed promising, that seemed either available or seemed to be available. Right. So that posed two challenges for me. One, do I even want to keep the CR society going, given, given that it's clear it's it has utility has less potential impact. Exactly. But then secondly, um, do I want to um, shift gears and put more of my own energy into something else? And so I sort of vacillated for quite a while, and then I just by chance was in Florida a year ago, only um, visiting my parents, helping move actually, and called called up Bill Floon, thinking uh, that I might maybe write an article for the magazine about CR. Is it still worth it? I think I'm worth what I wanted to pitch. Um, and he said, where are you? I said, I'm in Florida. Oh, hey, I'm in Florida. Let's have dinner. We had dinner. We talked. We had another dinner. We talked. And uh, he said, you know, if you want to, he had already started this society for the rescue for elders. He said, if you want to become project manager, leave your life in Sweden um, and just really commit to this, I'll, you know, put you on retainer and we'll, we'll be off and running. And I said, yes. Excellent. Yeah, I would really, really. I bet you were like, man, this is going to be fun. It was generous yeah. of Bill and great for me because it, yeah. it uh, not that I, not that I minded teaching philosophy to hungover Vikings. So, but so remind me, is this, was, is this now two years? How long? One year. One year. Yeah. One year. A little bit more. It was, I think it was yeah, July you, or August. You, where are you at with this? Are you basically working some leads or have you actually completed some fund, funding or like? Well, we where we are now is what's going to be announced here at Radfest by by Bill Falloon um, in a few hours, and then uh, in a little more detail in his second presentation on Sunday, which is that we we now have a pretty good idea of some concrete steps people can take today mm -hmm. to slow aging. Um, and this is on the same. It, it involves a number of steps. I I, I feel like Analytics. I I feel like I don't want to go into it in too much detail because Bill wants to kind of. Yeah, open it to the world. Yeah, be the one to present it. But we, we have a little publication that, that you can grab um, where, where it's laid out. Um, but it's it's basically uh, a few, and none of this has been verified in phase three or even phase two trials. This is just stuff that we've either uh, put together using other people's research, um, research that others have funded, or research that we've helped fund through this group called Better Humans. This guy James Clement started a nonprofit, Better Humans, where he runs these um, open label, uh, non-randomized, uh, simple, non-placebo-controlled trials. Um, to sort of these phase zero trials, these exploratory trials. Okay. And some of the data from his work. So you, uh, it's on been, humans, but it's yep. non-randomized. So you basically just give some, give ten people something, yep, and see what happens. Exactly. You take a baseline, take a yeah. Exactly, exactly. And in some cases, you know, well, one can say, well, that doesn't really say that much. But in this case, he, he designs them very well. So we have. I, I, I gotta, I gotta, give me a moment. I gotta, I gotta remember what I'm allowed to say. Um, okay. I. Let's see. I think. I can say that the wait. Wait till Bill wait. gives his we'll, talk. We'll yeah, I don't. I don't want to screw this up. Uh, yeah. James doesn't really care, but it's 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 all pre-publication, and he's got a whole bunch of papers that are about to be accepted. I hope. Uh, I assume for publication, but but I, I can say that I, I am allowed to say that the results from uh, most, if not everything, he's done look positive in two ways. Um, they are safe and at least at least a bit efficacious. And so, what could this mean? Will it mean that there's a supplement? someone can take with these compounds? It'll mean, yes, supplement or drug in a particular order, and then you, and then actually I should back up. I mean, one of the things that has nothing to do with better humans uh, or, or anything other and than common sense. And this is the analytics area? That is part of it. Okay. But, but, but something that is, that is important here to back up and note, um, and that's nothing to do with uh, anything that better humans or that anything 
a researcher has done recently, but just almost common sense, the, the most fundamental first step that people should do, and I'm going to express it broadly, is to get the body um, in, in basic shape using things like vitamin D supplementation if your vitamin D is too low, or get out in the sun, exercise if you're overweight, eat better. I mean, these things actually are more effective than a lot of people realize. I mean, I'm still president of the CR Society, and I still want to wear that hat occasionally and tell people, even if they don't want to yeah. do extreme CR like I did for years. Um, that can help a lot. Yeah. Then take these steps that involve some, uh, some of these off-patent drugs or, you know, uh, sort of repurpose. Right, so build your foundation first. Yep. Um, with then, the basics that we know. So, all right, well, let's talk about the structure of that because that's, sure. that's kind of interesting and maybe it relates to what you do. I don't know. For you know, my own personal like, help. Have you implemented all of this stuff already? Absolutely. Right, so let's just talk about you. Sure. That's, that's sure. a good case study. So, sure. what do you do? Well, what I what I... What I what I did for a long time is calorie restriction, as you know. I mean, that, that's what I really thought. Isn't it? Is that like how many calories we're we talking per day? Well, for me, I've, I've got some sort of weird inefficient metabolism. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's going to sound like a lot, but and I, and I exercise a lot. So at my most extreme, where I really looked like an Auschwitz survivor, it was really very extreme. thin. Very thin. <laughs> I was. I was. It was. It was just. I looked in the mirror and I thought, that's not me. Mm -hmm. Even though I felt great. At that point, exercising a lot, I was eating something like 1,900 calories per day, and that doesn't sound like so little. Yeah. But what is it, like 10% deficit? Or like well, no, it was more like 35 to 40% oh. below what I'm eating now. Right. I'm still, I'm still pretty trim, right. but not like Right, so you've got, quite a, you, you've got quite a high metabolic rate. Yeah, yeah, which is actually bad, because that tends to be, well, one would assume it's correlated with rapid aging, because you're sort of burning through, it's like stepping on a gas pedal, and the engine's not quite in tune. So it's, it's, it's unfortunate. But anyway, so I did that for a long time and looked at my biomarkers, which improved dramatically. What I mean, kinds just of incredible. That was just, that was just like HDL through the roof, LDL, you know, really bottomed out. And what I did, the, you know, the, uh, the measuring particle count and size. And MR like micro profile? Yes. Yeah. Um, then the, the few LDL particles I had were enormous. So uh, Great. So that, that's, that's what you want, basically. I don't know if you remember. You probably don't remember numbers. Right. Uh, no, below I below eight hundred no. in the small particles, or oh yeah, no, it, it would have been well below. Yeah, but well based below. on what you're saying, it'd be well below eight hundred. Um, so really good. But we're talking about the nuclear magnetic resonance LiPo profile, which is uh, basically a test which looks at the particle size of your LDL and your HDL. Yep. And to really understand that versus just looking at LDL cholesterol total, which is normally what people look at. And the idea is that it's a lot more accurate because basically, if you're looking at total LDL could have some really big particles, which we don't really care about because they're not very atherosclerosis. We think. We think, yeah. yeah. This, is all, this is all like, you know. It's, 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 better, it's, it's a better assumption than LDL is bad for you. Absolutely. <laughs> it's progressing slowly, we'll, we'll say. Right. Um, but if you combine that with a bunch of biomarkers, then it starts to paint a, a realistic picture. So your homocysteine, your CRP, did you look at those? Yeah, yeah, all, all I mean, CRP was just sort of perfect. I mean, it couldn't be better. Homocysteine, I, I do have some genetically high homocysteine, so it didn't get below seven or so. Seven is actually well, very seven good. Is actually, yeah, it's, it's very good. good, but a lot of people on CR have, you know, five or yeah. lower. My, I have familial high uh, high blood pressure, so mine never got. A lot of people on CR, without having orthostatic hypotension, without sort of fainting when they stand up, they would have, you know, 85 over 57 or something and feel great. I didn't, mine was more like 102 over 60, yeah. which, which is great, but it's not a typical extreme CR value. My fasting glucose was, you know, like my doctor would say, do you feel weak? How, how, how much was it? It was like um, 60 or something. Right. Like, yeah. um, usually sometimes even high 50s. Yeah. So it was great. I, I felt great. Unfortunately, what happened was about 
three years ago, two and a half years ago, I had uh, hernia surgery. And then I was sort of screwed up, so it was three surgeries. I had to eat more um, to recover because you really have to have. Yes. Um, you have to just you have to eat more. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we want to go into mTOR signaling, but I, I had to get into a, a, this. I had to get out of a famine state, which is which doesn't make growth easy. Let's say. I have to confess, when I started eating more, I felt good in a way that made me think, wow. Alive. Well, you know, it's... it's, it's <laughs> There's something to calories after all. You know, well, and, and, and you know, leucine and brand, you know, the, the, the protein that makes the mTOR segment go up, and we can maybe talk about mTOR later, but... And testosterone. You know, suddenly I was a man again. Oh, did you test your testosterone? Because that does go down while you're fasting. Well, which is similar to caloric restriction, I would would think. And it's it's two things. Uh, People on really extreme CR have low total testosterone, but really low free testosterone. Right. Because the sexual hormone binding block goes really really high. Oh, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On CR, that typically. So we kind of joke men on CR um, that we're sort of functional units. And, 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 And so when when I started eating more, I, I did. I do have to say that I, I realized, wow, that there was perhaps more of a sacrifice to being on CR than I realized. Being hungry was not a problem for me ever. Feeling cold is not a problem. You put on the sweater, but the sort of not and having. You, and you sort of also were starting to realize, I guess, that CR may not be as impactful compared to all these other. That stuff. too. That too. So you got um, double whammy. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, uh. so. So that got me thinking about alternatives. So at that point. I started, uh, well, I had to recover from my surgeries, um, that took a while, and uh, so then I started going back into the research uh, in my off hours, and that's when I started to realize how much else is out there, and I looked into rapamycin, this immune rejection drug that appears to be a partial calorie restriction, uh, nematic organic, that I'm now on, by the way. So, you're anyway, rapamycin. Yeah, so to answer your question quickly. Right, let's, let's, let's yep. look at yours. Here's, here's my so, All right, so I got off CR, um, had a bunch of testosterone, and you know, had fun with that. And, and then I realized, okay, but I got to get serious about not dying. So, what, how old are you, by the way? 55. 55. What I started with, because I'm so more knowledgeable about diet than anything else, what I started with was time restricted eating. I didn't want to go back on CR in the way that I had been, but I wanted to have some of the benefits of a CR like yeah. diet. So, and I was interested in. Walter Longo's work, and I tried the fasting mimicking diet um, for a while, and then I tried... How many cycles did you... I only went through, I did it once every five or six weeks for about uh, four months, and it, 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 it's hard to know. I mean, you know, you get these immediate benefits after, and they start to fade. It's not clear. He hasn't done the, 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 or the experiment that I think would be really important, which is to do daily CR, where with an amount that is the average amount that someone on the fasting mimicking diet would end up eating, right? Like you, if you eat, if you eat let's say, 2,500 calories per day normally, and then you eat 500 per day for five days every month, you average that out, what is that per day for the month, right? And it might be whatever that works out to. So then you do the study with normal daily CR, eating the same total amount averaged out over a couple months. So you want him he to He hasn't done that. Right, because we don't know if it's fasting per se. Or, uh, right, so you, you're saying it might just be the calorie reduction because five right. days you reduce your calories? Right, we don't know that. He needs to do the experiment. You do, be... you do have, I mean, so I've done uh, a fair amount of fast mimic that I did one last week, and you see this bounce, you know, you, your immune system goes down, it's going to go down further because there's more autophagy, right, right. Than, than calorie restriction. So well, I'm... we don't know that. No? We don't know that, actually. I mean, there, there's CR, it depends, it may, like mild CR, maybe not, but certainly daily CR, at least moderate CR, there is autophagy, and there's, there's all kinds of things that happen at a slower level than during the fast or a fasting that we die. Well, what I do know is, like, your immune system, like, your, just your white blood cell count is halved right, right on day right. five. Yep. Um, and then 
you, know, you, you test again seven days later after refeeding, and you'll actually be uh, higher than your baseline. Right. And that's what I've seen several times now. Oh. Um, okay. So. Yeah, in your self. I, I'm using yeah. Oh. And I, I'm using it as a proxy for autophagy, which isn't great, but it's difficult to get an autophagy. I know. You know, and, and get a biomarker. So I'm continuing to look into that. Like, but it, it keeps me hopeful. Um, and yeah. I've also seen some effects in my mother, who's now doing cycles of these to combat cancer. Um, oh, wow. And uh, it looks promising from that. It looks like, so what, basically there's a, for her type of cancer, you have uh, immunoglobulin M, which grows over time. So the maximum reference range would be two, hers is 20, right? Because mm -hmm. um, basically over the years it's grown. Um, and uh, basically what we're trying to do is knock it down by doing a fast moving diet once a, once a month. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it. Two, right, two times in a row now, boom, boom. So that says to me autophagy, because that's the idea behind why I, w I wanted to implement it with her, is that she's getting that autophagy, it's clearing up some of the senescence, you know, what, well, the cancerous cells in this, in this right. case, not just senescent, but right. evil cancer cells, right. and, you know, we're hopefully replacing uh, with some of the good cells, because she was getting a lot of immune system issues as well. So, but I, but I understand, you know, like, it's, it's hard to get at that autophagy if it's actually going on. Right, it, it's, so... I was trying to figure out, do I want to keep doing this, do I want to, I, I, I was pretty confident I didn't want to do daily CR, because that, that just, I was, I was Well, it just seems like you, you kind of, it doesn't seem like you're taking some of the fun out of life, like you say, because your testosterone is always going to be low. Right, although, although my, what, I, what I argued before I experienced the surge of testosterone after my surgery was that, well, it doesn't matter, because, I mean, I was able to have, you know, normal relations with women, and I was able to fall in love, but... For the first time in my life. No, no, no. I know. I mean, before, before. Oh, okay. I was, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So, so, so it isn't. It isn't. As no, no, no. Good, good. No, no. Yeah. Was, yeah. So finally, at the age of fifty-two, I fell in love and had sex. And I um, realized why. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But on the other hand, I mean, it, it, it. You know, love does have a component that is obviously physiological, and a lot of it is this lust. And you know that what we told ourselves is that well, we have a more sublime form of love, like what Socrates describes in Plato's Symposium, the character of Socrates, if anyone knows that. Um, you know, you, you sort of start with the body and then you, the, the diotima is the character that Socrates himself talks about, saying, and then we kind of become more sublime as we love in a less corporeal way. We set all these notions of how we were in some ways still able to love and it was better. That's absurd. I mean, it, it's, it's got to be sexual in a kind of more blunt, direct way. Anyway, so I knew I didn't want to do daily CR. I experimented with the fasting mimicking diet, and I may still do that um, periodically. It, it's not that you have to choose one way of doing time-restricted eating and stick with it. But then I tried um, sort of restricted eating window daily, and that was too difficult because I exercised... Which hours? Well, that's, this is the problem. I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest I'd say a lot. I would say some evidence to suggest that we do need to eat. This is very controversial, but we do need to eat um, s not too late in the day of our first meal. That's controversial, but actually, have you seen Sachin Panda's work? Yes. Yeah. Right. So he's really pushing that we shouldn't be eating late in the day, and I've been using that template since his work. It, it's, it's something about the body expects. It, it, I mean, now they're also this is. Lots of people working on this. These um, which genes turn on and off in the normal circadian cycle. It's a lot of it's based on works in rodents, which, which are nocturnal. So it's hard to know if you can flip that to a diurnal pattern for humans. But it seems it seems pretty clear that there are changes in genes. We don't know in humans what they are, but there are these kind of you know go have sex during the day. And right, then, you're saying the epigenetic clock, basically right, circadian the, the clock, circadian one, yeah. right? And then and then and then. 
at night um, you get into this repair mode that could be interfered with if you've got a belly full of food. Yeah, exactly. And my problem, and some other people have this, this is why we're all different, we can't come up with general rules that everyone can follow, is I have these horrible sleep problems. And they got worse about seven or eight years ago. That's another reason why I had to go off cigar. Um, because somehow the low blood glucose at night was causing an increase. Right, you get a cortisol, cortisol. spike, yeah. Right. And then maybe that was happening all along and I became more sensitive because I got older, or maybe the spike went higher. I don't something changed. So I, that's another reason why I just cannot be on CR unless I'm going to take really powerful, probably brain damaging sleep meds, which I don't want to do, of course. Um, kind so, of avoids purpose of the yeah, whole Yeah, so I you know, make it to 80 and I'm you know, sort of drooling and <laughs> I don't remember my name. So, um, unless I'm going to put it into the cloud uh, before I become drooling. <laughs> anyway, so I was, at, at first I tried a time window that was late because of my sleep problems. And I just was too scared that I was, I was screwing up these, these, uh, these psychogenetic yeah. changes. So then I tried an early window, but then I couldn't sleep. And I was trying to find some safer sleep meds, you know, the so-called Z drugs. They have these non-Z names like Ambien, which is uh, Zolpidem. But there's one with a short half-life called Zalaplon, which I think is Sonata. I always forget the easy to remember names. Yeah, I think it's Sonata, yeah. Um, that, that I would take because I, I have sleep maintenance insomnia. My head is still on sleep, and I wake up after four hours and I can't I sleep. So I take Zalap on that. But that's still not so safe. So I gave up on that because it just was, I, it was either I was eating. So you wake up early? Yeah, I wake up too early. Too early. I can't back to sleep. So um, I've had unless, in, too. Oh, it's horrible. Unless I stuff my face before I go to bed. Huh. Which is, Have you tried CBD oil? Yeah, and that, the, the amount I need. <laughs> I haven't found really pure CBD oil. Is I think that might be part of the problem. I, I managed to get a hold of some stuff from a person I knew, and it did seem to help. But only if I took it once in a while. If I start oh. taking it every night, it stops working. Well, doesn't doesn't do a trick. All right, but see that that yeah, that, that's a whole other topic. That the yeah. how to how to manage sleep. So I, I sort of I, what I'm now doing is I'm suffering the different types of damage. I cycle through different things that are useful but damaging in different ways. So. I'll eat late a couple times a week, then I might get reflux, another problem, and I might screw up my the, the genes that are supposed to turn on. That's only a couple times a week. I'll take the CBD oil. The, the reason I ask about the purity is not so much about the strength, but typically there will be a little bit of THC mixed in, uh, even if it's illegal. Right. And I need a huge amount of CBD to have an effect, but that means this is a the amount of THC. Uh, so I do that a couple times a week and wake up half stoned, I think, or something. Maybe it's a CBD that's making me feel that way. And then a couple times a week I'll use if, if, if you, like if, if I take more, I, I'm quite sensitive to it. I don't need a lot. You're lucky. Yeah, yeah I need I, I'll wake up really drowsy in the morning, and I need like two coffees to, to wake up. It kind of avoids the purpose. God, I've, and I've tried this um, Suvorexant, which I think has the Belsomera, uh, which works on this, this new system to discover the orexin receptors, if you've heard of that. It's incredibly expensive, and that sort of works. You feel like it's got a long half-life, so you sort of feel like crap. So, you know, I don't know if this will be helpful, but this is the, one of the things that kind of helped me a lot, is um, I, saw, I found a Parkinson's um, study they were looking at, because they have the same uh, night-waking problem. Right. Oh, right. Um, and so they did this experiment where basically they gave them a strong light source, 10,000 lux, these sad lamps, you know, the yep. seasonal affective disorder lamps, that are medical lamps. You put one of those in front of you and you expose yourself to that for an hour in the morning or something like that. I think it was actually half an hour in the study, it wasn't that long, but I'll leave mine on for an hour sometimes. Um, and so I bought one of these and I just put it next to my uh, laptop when I'm working in the morning. And it's given that stronger, stronger relative mm -hmm. signal because we don't get outside. And yep. you know, uh, I'm in London. 
all the time. Yeah. And that's yeah. just, I mean, you actually don't even know if it's daytime. Sometimes you look out the window like... It's like that in Stockholm. <laughs> yeah, right. Whereas here, you know, yeah. we don't have that problem at all. But anyway, so that has seemed to help. Just, mm. you know, I do it every morning because it's right next to my computer. just like, boom. And honestly, so I, I knew it was working because at first, like, what I tend to do is have my coffee and then I feel live. And I would switch it on and, like, just check, you know, the usual business stuff. Like, is anything blown up while I was asleep? Or, you know, so I'd do that. And I was like, you know, I really want to have my coffee, but I actually don't need it. I'm already, like, really awake. Wow. Yeah, I was. And so I started to notice that. And then it seemed to have, on the other end of the spectrum, I was getting uh, more sleepy in the evenings, right? Because I now you've increased the relative distance. Right. You've got a strong light in the morning. And then and now when you got it, it gets dark in the evening, I was like, I was starting to feel drugged and I started to go to sleep at 9 o'clock, no problem. And that's the other thing that has really made a difference is getting to bed early. If I can get to bed at 9, I'll still wake up at 4, but I've had a lot more, you know, I've had uh, 7 hours of sleep. Your body is smarter than mine, because mm -hmm. I, if I go to bed early, the whole problem just shifts to the east. Uh, uh, you know, so I'm in Florida, I'll go to bed at 9, I, I will wake up at 1. And if then I'll be, you know, I'd be like, okay, I'll try this other you know, method of not taking a power nap and just so that you have a, all your sleep right. compressed and I will fall asleep at eight and I'll wake up at midnight and I'm just suddenly I'm on back on Stockholm time living in Florida and then I'm on Mumbai time it just it just keeps going to the east, you know. So or earlier. So maybe it'd be interesting for you to wear a CGM, see if there's yeah. anything going on. Some people see spikes in the you know, or yeah, like that's or a good drops, idea. you know, at a specific time and then you could be like, Oh look, like I woke up at that time and it's like tanking like like you say, or maybe it's not like some people see spikes sometimes. I wonder if that's an infection that's active during the night or something like that. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's a really good idea. Anyway, idea. sorry. To, like, yeah. So, so getting my, back to my, your my stack. stack. Okay. Yeah. So, so I did this time restricted various forms of it, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep doing that because I, I I really I really do think that that can that can have a huge effect on health. I don't know what my ultimate plan will be. I know I'll do the periodic multi-day fasting or fasting diet. So just on the fast mimicking diet. So you decided that you're not so sure that's uh, you're not sure about the research. Is that why you dropped that, or is it just no, convenient? I or I haven't dropped it. It's no. more that I'm. It's it's more that I'm not convinced that doing it. I just, to be honest, I haven't decided yet. There's going to be a huge conference in early November that involves along with putting on in at UC, USC. Okay. November 9th and 10th that I'm going to go to. There's maybe there'll be some new what's, findings. What's that called? Something like fasting, CR, longevity. So it, it, it can be googled. Um, Volta Longo fasting November. US. Yeah, there we go. Then, and then, you'll, and you'll then find you'll get it. it. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to go to that, and perhaps there'll be some new results announced um, at the poster sessions, perhaps. Um, so anyway, um, so I haven't given up on this. Is that I'm not convinced that it's better than any other restricted eating. I, I do think it's beneficial. It's just that the you know is better than daily restriction. Is better than a time restricted window per day. Is better than every other day partial fasting. I don't know. So that's one thing. So that was my thinking about up to about a year ago. It was really until so I so I met I met Bill and got this this new amazing uh, job. And then really now I can wake up and read research. And that's what I started doing. And then traveling and going to conferences and talking to researchers. But um, so at that point I realized that um, there were some CR memetics worth looking into. And when, how one combines that with the restricted eating is very complicated. You want to have two ways of getting these genes to be activated. Is that too much? Who knows? But Rapamycin became particularly intriguing to me. I only started it three months ago. I, I is that to... easy to get? Yeah, it's 
pretty easy to get. We we have a, a relation with this group called International Aging Systems IAS. Oh, right there here. Yeah. They have a, they have a booth here, and they're they're based in, in London. Yeah. Um, so one can get rapamycin, a high quality source made in the EU, um, for a pretty reasonable price, and it, it can be it's you know the FDA here in the US or the DEA, whichever it is, um, permits I think a three month personal supply. Um, so even though it's a prescription drug. Um, so you can, as just as a consumer, you can yep, order it. Yep, yep, and you can do it from any country. It's just that the, the border controls are, might be tougher in some countries, but in the U.S. It's, it's pretty open. And then otherwise you can get a prescription. It's, it's not cheap, but it's, it's, not, it's not like Zazatinib, which we'll get to in a moment. That's very expensive. But. So I'm taking now 7.5 milligrams once a week, which is much higher or some, somewhat higher than what anyone else is taking. Typically, people would take between three and six. Okay, why, why are you taking I decided, as part of my job, I, I kind of want to push the envelope a little bit. Uh, it, you know, not because it's going to be scientific, but mostly when it comes to the side effects, so that I can then report to people uh, what I felt during the detail. No, nothing negative. How long have you been? I, I started at um, four milligrams per week yeah. about three months ago. Um, and then I went up to five, then 6.25 because of the scoring of the tablets. Are you, t are you taking labs? Or do, you, yeah. do, you, do you have a tracking routine or do you just take labs? I, I, am, I am terribly embarrassed to say I'm sloppy on that front. And, and it's, it's, partly, it's partly laziness, I have to confess. But mostly it's that as part of my work, I really have to try a lot of these things. And it would be so hard to isolate the relevant independent variable when I'm trying so many things all the time that it, it doesn't add a lot of value to get labs done and to draw a conclusion about any one treatment. It's not useless, and I have done some labs, and I will report on our, on our blog at societyforrestrialelders.org. I am going to report uh, some results that I think I can attribute to one treatment and not some of the other ones I did a little bit earlier. But it's, 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 it's complicated scientifically, because I really do, I do have to. I mean, if I go to a conference and there's an exhibit booth with someone offering something, I feel like I have to try it. it, it just to, it's, for, it's my job. You know? right. Or if I'm, I'm, I'm traveling around the world and I meet some mad scientist who's got some kind of exosomes or something, and I think they're safe, you know, and he says, hey, you want some? I'll try it. You know, it, it sort of seems, it seems like that's, that's part of what I need to do. And it's well, sure, you're trending you. Like, you're, every now and again, you eat some lambs just to see what's going on. With yeah. You, just in case you sabotage your whole anti-aging right. plan. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. That I'm certainly doing. So, I mean, I can say that um, I'm also eating, by the way, another shift that I made in my diet, aside from energy intake level, was the uh, foods that I eat. I, I went to a radically high-fat, low-carb diet, like almost 80% calories from fat, um, mostly nuts. Macadamia? Um, no, I, 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 I'm sort of convinced that saturated fats, even of, of any chain length, uh -huh. um, are probably not so great, and macadamia have more saturated. It's not a lot, it's not like a steak or, you know, but, um, or lard. Um, but, um, so I don't, I, I, I mean, I love them. You know, if I go to a party, I'll grab quite a few, quite a few, <laughs> but um, they're delicious. But, uh, but no, I try to, I try to stick with um, walnuts, almonds, pistachio, good. what else? Uh, pecans, those, those are not so great, but, um, but I love them. A little bit of olive oil, which also has a lot of saturated fat, actually, compared to some of these other nuts. 
so anyway, um, that shift has led to higher LDL, just to speak of the, the general trend of my biomarkers. And there's the, the, the one thing I'm worried about that doesn't look good is my, I haven't done an NMR, this, this way of measuring particle size um, of the LDLs. I haven't done that in a while. Um, the last time I did it, it looks it looked good. Not great, but good. But I have to do it again because I'm eating even more nuts now. It's basically, my, 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 I wake up, I eat nuts and you know, broccoli or kale or something. That's pretty much it. So now, so back to rapamycin. So I, I started um, increasing the amount I was taking, and really I've had no side effects. Um, I had I had cankerous, like the cankerous or once, which people get only once. Um, so rapamycin, one of the side effects is immune suppression. So that's one of the concerns where they, you know, that's why you wouldn't be taking it every day. Exactly, right? exactly. Because uh, you're going to get some immune uh, suppression with it, but you know, you're hoping that that's just a momentary downside and thus can sort Yeah, almost everyone reports that. Um, and, and, and I would not recommend 7.5. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's quite high. But, I, but on the other hand, to be honest, if you scale up from the rodent studies that showed the maximum lifespan benefit, the, the, the equivalent would be something like 10 to 12 milligrams for a human once a week. That's part of why it bumps it up to 7.5. I may even go higher. Um, you know, we'll have to see. It's got a really long half-life. It's usually some people say I think somewhere between 62 and 67 hours. So it's so you know one could do 7.5 and maybe do it every eight days instead of every seven. You know, just to give some period of letting it uh, taper out. And it's it's partly as you say because the immune risk, but also there seems to be a risk of it's not clear a, a risk of. Uh, Glucose, uh, glucose regulatory dysregulation. Yeah. Um, in terms of it gets more variable? Or? Well, no, it, it, it actually glucose goes up. I mean, it just fast. The general level general trend goes up, yeah. But in, in, in some studies, not all. But then there's this other weird phenomenon where it seems to disappear after a while, after a few months. That's why there's this problem. We know, we're pretty sure we have to pulse the dose. But is the pulsing like you know, do it once a week instead of once a day, yeah. or take it once a day for a few months, let the side effects taper off, which they do according to some studies, and then and stop them and then stop them. And so even don't pulsing know. once a week, you still get that rise? Is that, well, is the, that a chronic it, we don't. We don't know. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. Um, I'm, I've, I've got to do more. I, I actually, here I do have some data, because I was, this is something that I can say it's, it's the rapamycin. That's why I should say it's a good uh, sort of non-finding. Um, I, my fasting glucose, like, I, I, because now, now I'm eating very early in the morning, and um, f a smaller amount fairly late in the evening. So my, my big gap is actually between breakfast and evening. So I take my fasting glucose at 8 p.m. Yeah. And it is typically these days, so I'm not on extreme CR, um, sort of in the, the mid-70s. Um, and on rapamycin, uh, it's been typically 70 or 71. So it's not gone up, it's gone down. You know, its margin of error is pretty large. So, but it certainly hasn't skyrocketed up, which is what the some of the mice research might indicate that it would. So I'm not worried about that effect. I haven't had my lipids measured recently, but I am going to do that soon. Then for the full NMR and, and see what it looks like. Um, that's part of my stack. We can go on so, for hours. So here. we have. Uh, so far, to resume. Yes. Uh, we have time restricted eating of various forms. Of yeah. various forms. We have a ketogenic diet. Yep. Right. We have rapamycin. Seven point five milligrams. Probably will go higher. What else? Do we and then next um, would be uh, nicotinamide riboside, oral nicotinamide riboside. Is that Nigen? That, that's one of the brands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is to raise NAD levels. Um, 
in the blood and more importantly in the cells. And then I may periodically... Have you, have you done any testing on that? Because I saw people are doing more tests now. I haven't seen any uh, results. Yeah. No, I haven't yet. I, see, th this is a complicated topic. The, do blood levels matter so much or is it the levels in yeah, the cell? Red blood cell, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. It, it's it's uh, So I'm not really sure, but we do know that nicotine hydroxide will raise um, blood levels, it will double blood levels, and probably we don't, I'm not sure how much we know the extent to which it will raise levels in the cells, yeah. but it certainly does raise levels to some degree in the cells, which I think is where it matters. What I do is I take, um, because rapamycin is a partial CR mimetic, it's probably going to increase my own production of it to right. some degree. So, so I have this complicated um, weekly cycle of when I first take the rapamycin, I'll only take 250 milligrams of hydroxide these first two days per day, and then I'll go up to 500, and then towards day six or seven, I'm taking 750. And then when I'm doing a, a fasting mimicking diet, um, and by the way, I may I may skip a week of rapamycin. I may adopt that pattern. So once every four to six weeks, do a five day. Partial, near fast, yeah. and then don't take rapamycin because that would be too much, too low, too much. Right, I mean, you're doing the fast anyway, so. And then I wouldn't take any nicotine hydroxide yeah. for a few days. So, time restricted eating, ketogenic diet, high fat, low carb, um, rapamycin, nicotine hydroxide. Maybe I'll take, I'll do the occasional uh, NAD patch or infusion, though I don't, I'm not really sure about that. But then finally, of, of the, the big things, oh, and then of course exercise, what you know, exercise. Um, what kind of exercise? Strength training, um, although there's so many old baseball injuries, I, I, there's actually not a lot I can do, but these, you know, push-ups, um, uh, I've got a chin-up bar, um, I do, I, I, I sort of don't have time to go to the gym, so I've, you know, I've got my backpack with um, different sized rocks. I put in it and do kind of overhead pulse. I just, you know, I sort of do everything at home, so I just can't, I can't really leave my computer if you want. Um, and then I run and walk briskly. I always exercise after meals to knock down postprandial glucose and lipids. People don't realize postprandial lipids can be a problem too. So always. I mean, if I'm at a restaurant with, you know, a, a billionaire that I'm trying to get um, some financing for a project for, maybe I won't right. exercise and I will take metformin. Are you saying metformin as well? Only, only, only if I cannot exercise after eating and I've had more than a tiny amount of carbs. Oh, okay, interesting. 500 milligrams. Is, there, is that based on any study or anything? Well, it's based on you know what we know for uh, you know with metformin and type 2 diabetics. I mean, it will it will actually knock down most metabolism. So you're, so you're not looking at because you know um, some people are just taking it chronically. Lots of people. Yeah. Lots of people. More, I, more. <laughs> I get yeah, tons of people, and I I'm, I'm kind of an outlier here where I, I actually am not convinced that for healthy, trim people who eat well and exercise, mm -hmm. it really is worth it. Right. But, um, and then I know some clinicians who have tried, and this is actually worth noting, um, two clinicians who are kind of anti-aging doctors, really smart people, um, who have tried metformin in the elderly. Yeah. And the elderly say, you know, it kind of feel like crap, because it lowers their energy levels. That's part of how it works. Um, mm -hmm. So, where was I? So, all right, so, so now, the next thing I haven't talked about is the um, synolytics. Some people think that, well, a lot of people think that it's that we shouldn't try any of them, that we need more human research. And that I can understand. I mean, it's not strange for a physician to say, let's wait until phase one, phase two, phase three trials. Um, 
Uh, so I would not recommend that anyone try these. Uh, I can just say that I personally want to and have tried them, want to try them, have tried them, and would like my mother to try them. The combination of tisatsin and quercetin, if one is going to try it, the conservative thing would be do it once every few years. You just take the dose, um, knock out a whole bunch of certain classes of senescent cells, it doesn't target all of them, of course, each different type of senolytic agent and okay. different target. Um, so this is mostly creative sites uh, that will knock out um, a few other types of cells, uh, but most mostly creative sites. And um, do it once every few years, and then they build back. I'm, I'm doing a much more aggressive uh, approach where I'm taking it every four or five months. It, I, it, it's basically, it's, I should stick to a strict schedule, but I, I just get too busy and I'm traveling. And there, there can be side effects from this the, during the 12 to 20 four or so hours after you take it. So it's not something... Um, so what's the name of this? This is desatinib, which is a cancer drug. And uh, how do you get your hands on it? Kind of metaphorically speaking, sometimes it's, you know, it's a researcher pal in some way, you know, maybe, or it might be... Uh, connections? Yeah, it can be. You can get it in various ways. The proper way to get it, um, which I'm now going to use, is basically you go to a doctor and... Um, I mean, research rebel, I'm not talking about anything illegal. You, you become part of the study. Um, yeah, and there are lots of studies now going on. Um, not lots, but there are a few. But the standard way that I, I, would, I would recommend would be go to, a, go to your doctor, if you're a healthcare practitioner, say you want to do this, um, show the doctor the studies, and get a prescription, and then pay, unfortunately, the huge amount of money. There are ways to get this um, through, you know, various overseas sources uh, where it's a little bit less expensive but still high quality, usually from India. Um, so there might be um, for an amount. The amount that you take is is um, per round, let's say, which you can divide in halves and take you know one week and then the next. But per round would be five milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Okay. So I have sixty-eight kilograms on three hundred and forty milligrams. So you can you, you did, so that would be that would be seven 50 milligram tablets. It's, it's actually hard to get a bottle of, for me, seven 50 milligram tablets. So I usually have to buy too much and then give some to a friend or go halves on it or whatever it might be. Quercetin is a natural substance you buy as a supplement and you take 10 times as much of that. So that would be 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So what, what we now think is that it's better, and Bill Flynn will be describing this, um, Weaving lots of people, it's, it's better to divide that in half per what you would call round, which you do once every three years, or in my case, once every four or five right, months. So it's not very frequent. No, no, because it's it's. So what about all these vegans eating what's accursed? They're not eating as much as you know, not near. Not as much. As no, not not even close to what you get from this uh, this protocol. Um, and so you take that and. Uh, you know, you might get muscle cramps. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's the one serious risk, which is theoretical, you've never heard anyone having this problem with being in the factory shop. Okay. So you really should, the smart thing to do is, you know, go to your healthcare practitioner, talk about it, and if it's a conservative doctor, he or she would want to say, don't do this, it's a cancer drug, you're crazy, but if you have well, a cooperative doctor. You would doctor, think, yeah, if a lot of cells are getting killed off. Right, well, and, that, and that's, that's the, 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 so the theoretical risk of, of the, dangerous side effect is anaphylactic shock. The more long-term theoretical potential downside is the off-target effects because the mechanism is such that it could kill some healthy stem cells or something. I got a silly question. If 
you know, if we're killing off all of senescent cells, let's say they're doing something, right, but they're just not doing it very well. And um, as stem cells are declining, are we able to rectify that? I mean, well, well, do what, we end up with enough cells to do the job? Well, well, they're, they're what the senescent cells are doing, they, they, they actually, mostly they're doing really bad stuff. Yeah. But there are some positive roles with tissue remodeling. Um, they well, they're, kind of, they're, they're trying to do their job, right? But well, no, no, no. It's, it's, not, it's not that they're trying to do their job. They're kind of doing it. Uh, they're not doing it at all, uh, except possibly with tissue remodeling, setting up these extracellular matrix proteins that some of them are, are dangerous, but some of them are actually useful, useful, sort of useful to the body in, in tissue remodeling. So I don't, I don't think that's the problem. The problem, the risk would be. And in fact, the, the theory behind why this helps with osteoarthritis in particular, um, that's another thing that's seen in the Roman study, and, and I think I can say we have some human data, yeah, I will say we have some human data that really helps with osteoarthritis. Um, the way that it works is it actually frees up existing stem cells to do their job. But in theory, we really don't know. I mean, I, I, I see the results in the humans. I see the results in the, in the rodents. I, you know, I, I had a, a kidney stone a year ago, and I, it was diagnosed a little bit more than a year ago. And to diagnose it, they did a CT scan. I discovered I have calcification. Not much, very little, but that really shocked me. So you had the calcium score? No, I just discovered they saw that right, in, the, right. in the CT scan. The guy asked me, do you smoke? No. oh, there's some calcification here. Not much, but you know. So it was kind of a shock. That's one of the reasons why I was motivated to go to an aggressive, uh, decisive, aggressive and treatment protocol because that, it seems like that really will some calcification. So theoretically, I could be doing some harm. Um, and the, so the reason someone who's really young, I would say, my God, don't, don't be absurd to do this. I and mean, if you, I mean, anyone under 40, certainly it seems um, it's not foolish. Yeah, it's something to do later. Yeah, but. And, and that's partly because of the potential off-target effects. We, got, we really don't know. We have to do more studies. Um, but there's another reason. It's not entirely crazy to think that at some point soon we can turn some of these senescent cells back into healthy cells. Turn them, yeah. Um, and that, that... Fix them. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, there's even, actually, there's evidence that... Ra there's a, people are now talking about xenotherapy as this new term. So basically deal with the senescent cells in various ways, not simply with senolytics, which destroy them, but there's a, a, a new term that I think now rightfully can be applied to rapamycin called a xenomorphic. It changes the senescent cell. It doesn't make it perfectly healthy, but there's evidence that rapamycin will um, lower the amount of these injurious uh, paracrine factors that the senescent cells so are sending out. So they're becoming, they're, they're morphing, they're, they're changing. They're less dangerous. antagonistic. Yeah, yeah, basically. So, right. so rapamycin actually has that effect. Presumably, is that, is that, CR is that does as well. Is it damaging them in some way? Uh, damaging the senescent cells? Yeah. Probably not, probably not. It's actually, I, I, we don't know, but I would imagine it's more uh, an epigenetic change uh, in, the, in the senescent cell itself. It's actually changing. It's down Yeah. And these, these particular uh, injurious paradigms. Great. So is that your... That's it. That's full stack. Well, for now, well, we didn't mention the biologics. We did. We opened with the biologics. The, the next categories would be the biologics. Um, mm -hmm. the, the newer, the new living medicine, as some people are calling it, which doesn't apply to plasma, but it does to cells. If I had the money, I would get... Um, people are now saying MSCs, which used to stand for mesenchymal stem cells, but now they're saying let's call them medicinal signaling cells. Well, I heard that last night. Because it's not clear that they're just stem cells. Yeah, Neil Reardon mentioned that. 
yeah. support we'd like or you know medicine kind of strong cells but anyway MSCs from birth associated tissue I have not done that yet but if I could afford it that would be my next it, step it looks interesting well and young plasma as young as possible from umbilical cords cord blood would be great uh, Howard Chipman's offering is also very good as I mentioned I felt like Superman for a day and a half, tragically short, but it was great. So that would be that would be the thing that I would really want to put a lot of uh, energy into for my for my own treatment um, next, if I could afford it. Great! Wow. Um, so, are you doing any consistent tracking? Is there a, a lab panel you do like, well, once a year, once every six months? What I'm going to start doing is what. Um, or am I, am I um, encouraging you? <laughs> well, you, 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 you are. Lots of lots of people think I'm being an idiot by not getting more more. Um, or, or lazy, or, or both, <laughs> by not getting more blood work done. I track. I mean, I track simple things like uh, you know, pulse and blood pressure and body temperature and at home, body weight. Obviously, I've been doing that for for years. And I do what, what uh, Bill Falloon and I and our team came up with uh, this age management profile that you can get at LifeExtension.com. Uh, I think there's there's a there's a discount. Um, let me see. Go to how do I? It's it's. I will. I will make this available. It's, it's, it's a. It's a uh, set of panels. A huge set. Yeah. yeah, of things. I am going to do that every six months, okay. um, and it's got a whole bunch of relevant markers. Uh, you know, it's got a lot of inflammatory markers. The other thing I'm doing is um, DNA methylation testing um, through Zymo um, research worker. DNA methylation. Yeah. So epigenetics. Right, and that may be new to some of our viewers here. That's um, so that's really new. I've been talking to a couple of companies doing that. There's one in the UK. And it looked interesting, but I was like, it's so early stage. I got into the whole microbiome area. I've, I've done so many tests from all the companies. Nothing actionable at the end of all of that stuff. And the test results were varying between companies. Um, and right. you know, I was just like, this is too early stage. You know, this, I don't know if this, this is actually usable at all. So now I'm a bit, I take my time, talk to a lot of people, try to get into it, like, if I take two labs and I put them together, am I going to get similar results or no, what am I going to get here? With, with epigenetic testing, you will get varying results because it is, it is, it's basically, I mean, there are... Well, it's changing know. throughout the day, I mean, that's another... Exactly. I mean, Stephen Horvath at UCLA is the one who came up with this idea, I think, um, but he's one of the famous for having come up with it, and um, he selected... Uh, these, these, they're called CPG sites. It's a, a, a particular area yeah. uh, between a, a C and a G in the DNA chain where um, there, there's a basically you've got potentially a, a methylation. You've got a, a group covering over the DNA so that it can't be um, expressed. And um, and it, he based it on actuarial data, I think. Or, or and or data from the Framingham study, I, I think. And he had the, the tons of data, and it's a very accurate way of predicting someone's chronological age. Oh, chronological or biological? Chronological. That's because that's what they. So no matter what you've done during your life, oddly enough, it'll still say you're 50. Well, no, it will vary a little bit, but the, but the goal is chronological age. Now he has now come up with something called phenol uh, age. Is okay. the name of the new selection of CPG sites. That's going to measure biological age. That would be more useful. Zymo, um, this company that had a license with Orbath, has had a, a. They have a blood test, a urine test, and I think a saliva test. Yeah. And for each one, I think it's a slightly different selection of CBG sites. Um, so you have to do all of them. One could do all of them. I am doing all of them. I'm doing all. And of them. And that will give you a more complete picture. 
What they do, Freddy's into an algorithm and... No, no, I, they don't do that. Well, they could. Mm -hmm. Maybe they will. But um, they're, they're, this is a kind of off-books thing that we're, that we're doing. They're, they're helping me. Um, and okay. I'm helping them, I hope, by giving them more data. Are they early stage? I, I would say it would be it's somewhat early stage, but I... But it's based on Horvath's... It's based on Horvath's research. Well, 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 and their own. They're, they're now doing their own research. Uh -huh. So they're going to, I think, eventually move towards their own selection of CPG sites that they think will be the most useful. They may have several different tests. One that would be useful for measuring chronological age that you could license to insure yeah. insurance companies. One that would be a measure of uh, phenotypical age, your actual biological age that would be used for people like you and me and a lot of people watching this. That I'm doing. That I, I believe in the idea. I agree with you that it's somewhat early, but not, but only somewhat. It, it's not, I mean, I, I had the, my last results when I was 54, it came out as 50. So, uh, which is okay, this is a guy who was started CR too late, um, kind of went off CR for a while because he enjoyed the testosterone. And so, okay, that, that seems like four years. If I had been on strict CR earlier, maybe the, even though it's supposed to be chronological, not biological, it does change with increased uh, production and aging. So maybe it would have been 47 instead of 50. Uh, but it was nice that it was younger than right. <laughs> Validation. Yeah. Yeah, that it wasn't all a waste of time. Exactly, exactly. Just imagine gut on the I mean, diet. that's what we're trying to get at, right? Some really good biomarkers to tell us that the stuff's working. Yeah. Man, this has been a great chat. I'm, yeah, it really has been. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we've covered so much stuff, and it's been great to get all these insights, you know, of your personal experience and what you're up to. It's a personal journey, really. And, you know, you're constantly modifying stuff and Absolutely. Uh, looking into new stuff. So, where can people get in touch with you or reach out to you or learn more about what you do? Right, we have a we have a new website with a tragically long URL, but it's not too hard to uh, to remember. Society4AgeReversal.org, okay. and there's a blog there. If you click on that, I haven't started it yet. I'm going to start it tonight. Um, and so tomorrow there's going to be an awesome post. Yeah, I hope. I hope. <laughs> and depending on how long it goes on this evening. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It may be somewhat drunken depending on the party tonight, but no, I actually alcohol is not something one should. Uh, Partaken too much um, if one wants to live a long life. Right. But yeah, that's that's where I'm going to be updating people on what I've discovered and what I'm, you know, side effects of my own experimentation and so, yeah, anything I learned. I'll be following. All right. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thank you. All right. Third time lucky, hey guys. Uh, we've been messing around with the equipment here, but we're now ready to chat. Right, so right now we're at Radfest. Uh, this is the ongoing thing we got uh, today and tomorrow left. And we're going to be doing some more interviews. And right now we have Quantified Bob. You know Quantified Bob if you're a super fan of Quantified Body because he was in episode 22 talking about intermittent fasting and blood glucose dysregulation and his experiments and tracking around that. So we've met Bob and we've had a great conversation before. Um, so if you haven't listened to that, you might want to go and listen to that before you re-listen to this and re-watch this because we'll just, you know, cover new ground basically. We're not going to go over the old stuff. So Bob, how are you doing? I am doing great. So this is the third day of this uh, yeah, Radfest event. The event. So, yeah. I mean, we've had so many conversations just over the last three days because uh, just seeing some of the talks about some of these advancements and, and some of the therapeutic um, work that's being done and around stem cells and it's like, you know, going from I think when I was on your podcast, it was three years ago or something like that, originally, you know, and it was very group talking about, you know, on a very macro high level, it's about, you know, a certain dietary things, not, and 
and interventions and you know getting into maybe some data around like glucose tracking but now we're getting down to like the cellular level and, and subcellular level and seeing it's how rapidly these advancements are happening and it's um it's really cool like i and i think we've you know just in those past few years like we've gained so much additional knowledge and insights it's like i look back at even when we spoke and i was like wow some of it's actually kind of cool it's relevant like we talked about it's cellular testing yeah. and stuff but then like there's a whole new wave of science and things that are coming out yeah, yeah, and uh, what do you what have you thought of the event so far? Have you been enjoying it? What do you think are the great points of it? Would you recommend people come here? Or? Yeah, so I haven't been to this event before. That was my main you know curiosity about it. I I uh, wanted to come last year, so I came this year. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I, I'm a long time subscriber of the Life Extension. They get the magazine. You get you know you order some of their supplements and things like that. It's a really cool, interesting crowd. I mean, there's a, a real sense of community around this, and you know when you talk about longevity and it's not this, you know, this is even this conference is called, uh, it's like revolution against aging and dying. And I'm just like, okay, so, you know, yeah. it's extreme. I'm like, I like to make it a positive. I, I, instead of saying a revolution against, I'd make it like something for living longer and better and, you know, more productive lives. And, but, um, the talks have been great. You know, there's, I like conferences where the presentations kind of get into some of the science, um, you know, not being like a sales pitch or anything like that. So I was, you know, we we're getting to see some really cool talks. I, I'm actually learning more. Like I, you know, often I go and see talks. I was like, I've read about this. I've already read that and read yeah. that. And and then, yeah, I'm coming away with these, from these talks with like notes and mental notes and things I got to go follow up on because it's like really, you know, piques my interest. Yeah. So I've also found that like just the quality, like the people we met here, you know, I've met so many cool people here, been talking uh, with people, we hung out with people last night from some of the startups that have been funded in order to, uh, you know, achieve some of these anti-aging or bring some of these anti-aging therapies eventually to market. So there's really interesting pe people here um, doing interesting stuff. So I think that's one of the great things of this. This is my first life extension conference. I don't know about you. Yep, same. Yeah. yeah, and the other thing I was going to say was that what we're seeing is this like in the general idea, uh, the general space of uh, let's call it wellness and longevity, um, the overlap. Because I'm running into friends and people like I was like, what are you doing here? Like from like a whether it's a, a quantified self conference or a biohacking conference or like a paleo FX conference. Like all these worlds are just overlapping now, and it's it's really interesting. You're meeting the same people. Yeah, well, new people, but also you're seeing everyone's interests are cross pollinating. It's all becoming like. Around this whole concept of overall, overall self-optimization, and you know, and yeah. trying to be the, you know, figure out all the different ways to sort of, you know, make ourselves the best we can be. Excellent, excellent. All right, let's talk about uh, what you've been up to since we uh, last spoke. So it's been three years. Um, what's the most interesting tool or tactic you you tested, or you or you've used consistently because you actually see it's making a difference? Sure. Well, if you want to talk about just um, insights, and I, I feel like I. I've gone from again that that sort of macro level of really like, you know tweaking my diet, trying to like heal my gut, and, and those types of tactics. And we talked about concepts like intermittent fasting, and, and now you're seeing um, a proliferation of things like uh, types of fasting protocols and fasting mimicking diets. And so you know we, we've both done a lot of uh, experimentation around that, um, which is which really cool. And, and, and digging even a little deeper, I, I'm looking at things now more from you know. Ultimately, everything we're doing kind of boils down to like, for me at least, I'm seeing it as mitochondrial health and you know and efficiency. And so I look at tools and tactics and being like, how is that helping or hindering that? So whether I'm using a modality that you know reduces oxidative stress in my body or how I'm adapting my diet, it's all about how I'm making that as efficient as possible. And so I'm kind of it's kind of going from that like as you peel back every layer of the onion, you're going, okay, what am I really honing in on there? You know, and that so for me that's 
the, you know, a really big part of it. And, um, you know, in some of the tools, like, you know, we talk about, like, wearables and getting data off of all that. I mean, we've seen a big shift in that whole landscape where some, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of companies go. They're yeah. gone, or the ones that were really open about letting you access data and have open access to it, or they're sort of siloing themselves off because they're trying to monetize it on their own, which has been kind of frustrating. But now, like, you know, three years ago, everybody was doing, like, 23andMe testing for genetics, but now, like, whole genome sequencing is, is affordable. You right, so, you know, we, we've seen a few companies talking about this, uh, the whole genome sequencing. Lilith Parish is by Viva. Um, is you know, I'm doing the health nucleus, they're doing it, but there are other companies as well. I, I, I talked to someone yesterday and he was saying there's a huge, uh, there's a huge movement in China for this as well, like whole genome sequencing. So it's, it's available now. Um, you know, and it's actually the whole thing rather than the 23andMe is just a s small part of it. So we're getting to that step where we actually have better data. Yeah, and, and it's one of those things where that whole genome sequencing just five years ago was like a million dollars, and now it's down to under a thousand dollars, let's say. And so, and a year from now, it'll be what you were paying for a 23andMe test a few years ago. And yeah. so it's pretty amazing, you know. Yeah. And I think the fact that other people are doing this, that's going to help bring those costs down because they're all kind of competing in a way now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I guess the other thing I liked about this um, here is this community. Like you, you see these companies there competing against each other. Like you know, stem cell companies, they're they're in the same area, so they're they're competitors. But what you see here is everyone has a common objective, which is to defeat to defeat aging and to defeat the damage of aging, and they're working together a lot of the time in networks and in partnerships, even though they're actually competitors. So it's really nice to see that because, you know, they're focused, so much focused on the objective, they're like, I don't care who makes it. It's kind of like Elon Musk does, you know, he's like, I just want electric cars to be in the world, so I'm going to open source all the signs and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm even seeing, you know, the, the Life Extension Foundation, like they do, a, they fund a lot of research and, and, and they're funding companies that are essentially, yeah, they could be viewed as competitors, but they're like, it's all, you know, they're going to get some innovation over here and they're going to get some innovation over here and eventually that will start coming together. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's pretty cool to see. I'm also seeing, you know, it's, companies are getting funded and, and it's, yeah, it's money, a lot of funding. I mean, institutional oh, money, like big money. And I was like, wow, it's like, Right. So we saw uh, the SENS Research Foundation yesterday. They had um, Y Combinator, as well, part of Y Combinator, had invested in one of the companies uh, targeting aging, and uh, Andresin Howowitz. You know, so these are huge names in VC uh, incubator, incubator world. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I think they all see where this stuff's going, and, and they're putting their bets down now on some of these, some of these players. And so, you know, I, I'm, I come at it from you know. I have a technology background. I'm an entrepreneur, as are you. And you know, so it's interesting to, to watch how that all plays out because, um, you know. Some of these are areas that maybe were those investors were more risk averse to a few years ago, and now they're seeing, you know, there are studies and they're seeing some glimmers of, of hope there, you know, in, in terms of like, wow, this stuff, they're really on to something, so there's money going in there. Um, so for me, it's about, okay, I want, I want those companies to be successful and get funded so they can make these things available to me, yeah. <laughs> like at an affordable cost. Right, right. And, and, you know, um, and that's, yeah, that's been exciting. But back to your original question about, you know, what have we been up to the last few years? I mean, yes, I mean, Gone through a lot. I mean, like we talk so about. What are you doing in a typical week now? Like, what, what, like you get up yeah. in the morning, like you know, like what does a typical week look like now in terms of, you know, the tools, the tactics, the tactics, and, and the tracking? Yeah. So I look at it from the standpoint of, no matter who's, you know, one person say they're more optimized or whatever than the other. It really comes down to we all have 24 hours in the day, and how am I going to make the most of that time? So, I've been fortunate. I, I, I've kind of done a lot of this, like. Like work in terms of you know, collecting some of my data, looking at data. I'm not doing it all all the time. There's moments where like 
I might do continuous glucose monitoring for a period of two weeks, but I'm not always wearing that sensor because I got my insights over those two. I maximize the time I'm wearing it, do get my insights, maybe six months from now or a year, I'll you know, use it again. So that and so that's not like a burden on me. Um, I try to passively collect as much data as possible. So, you know, even if I'm not using it, I'm not, I might not be using it today, but if I want to go back and look, like what was it six months ago, what actually happened back then, the data's there, it required no effort on my part. I mean, I spent a lot of time a few years back setting up some systems and tools, and now it's very much like a set it and forget it kind of thing where I can be on autopilot to some degree. Um, you know, I just, you know, that's what I'm seeing now, even on the consumer side, is the frustrations where like they're, they're getting access to their data and tools, but there's no, really no, the insights they're getting is, are not, like so you might say like, oh, your sleeping, your sleep is terrible, but, um, hey, you know, your sleep's bad. And they're like, I know my sleep's bad, so what should I do? And they're not really being given that next step of um, tactics and tools of like, what they could be implementing and what, there could be a whole slew of, of issues related to why their sleep is poor, you know, and really digging into that. You know, things like uh, training and recovery, I've been really big on kind of exploring some of these, like, uh, devices and tools and modalities that help us, you know, instead of going to the gym six days a week for three hours a day, like, I mean, you're literally just, you know, 30 minutes here and 30 minutes there and beyond with your day and you're going to get just as much result out of it. You know, it's not about who can work out the longest and, you know, and you're even like push the most weight. It's like there's more efficient ways to do it. Um, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, supplementation and, and, you know, experimenting with, with different things, whether it's you know, nootropics or just, you know, making sure I'm getting proper nutrient balance in my diet. You know, I, I've definitely cycled on and off things. Like right now, I'm three months into taking this uh, uh, nicotinamide riboside product that it's uh, basically a precursor to NAD. Allow, you know, basically allows the body should be able to convert this in, into that. And, you know, I'll be getting some blood drawn uh, shortly to see, like, has it shifted, has it increased my levels, am I much, you know, from, compared to, like, what someone at my biological age, let's say, would, would have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't, in terms of, like, is it something that I'll be taking long term? I may not need it. It may be the result is, you know, you're actually, your body doesn't need that additional supplementation. Maybe if you were in a, a certain, a different state or condition or older, then it would be like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe 10 years from now you should consider starting to take it. But, um, so, but you know, I was seeing some just other, you know, observations with it, like uh, it had a, like a slight shift to my circadian rhythm. Like I was waking up about 30 minutes earlier a day, but not exhausted. Just, it just seemed to like make me want to wake up earlier. And, and, was, and and recovery from workouts and training definitely was a noticeable effect of it. But you know that's just like one sort of experiment. Did a lot of been doing a lot of stuff around like cognitive testing and understanding like how to like, tools that can help measure and assess whether you've got acute trauma or past trauma in your brain or fatigue, etc. And and then what can you do or take to what helps or hinders that? Because I had actually. Thought you know, I assume from playing sports for years, getting hit in the head repeatedly, I'd have some issues. And but it turns out, like some of the tactics I guess I've been doing over the past few years have kept my my I guess brain state at a pretty good level. When I did the assessments, it was actually like, you know, I'm not say disappointed, but I was like, because it was like everything was like really good. They were like, you don't really need to make any changes or just keep doing what you're doing. So we're seeing these like cool assessment tools and devices that are coming out of these labs and, and you know things that maybe are used by professional sports teams or the military and they're being made accessible to to basically anybody and um and, and part of what i've done is I, I have all these sort of you know different types of training and recovery tools and and about six months ago myself and another person set up a, a facility in new york city because um i was realizing friends were coming over to use a lot of the, the things i had you know because i'm like instead of me just 
eating the cost of like one of these devices. I was like letting people get some benefit out of it. And so I said, why not just put it into a space and let people come and, and you know, share it, share it, you know, without having to come in my home, let's say. So it's been fun. It's almost like a little part gym, part lab, part um, playground, you know. Yeah. And so I, that, that for me is really exciting. And, you know, and from a business standpoint, it's, you know, it's really, I just use it more as a place where I'm collecting data and then I can do some really cool experiments around training and recovery and figure out how I can use these tools to affect, you know, baseline biomarkers and things like that. Yeah. Is there anything consistently you've collected and you do daily or at least weekly over time? Yeah, the, the daily, my routine would be like, um, wake. Uh, so as soon as I wake up in the morning, before I even get out of bed, I, I do a heart rate variability check. So about a two minute uh, check. It actually, are you correlating it with the aura? Yes, they don't correlate. So the aura, this is the new aura ring, so overnight while you're sleeping, it's, it's taking heart rate variability readings throughout the evening. And so, and then it gives you an average score, uh, an average um, number for, for overnight. The, for the night. For, you know, and, and, and it will vary. Like over it gives you the peak as well. Yeah, so like you might go from a really low sympathetic state to a parasympathetic, but it's just going to average it all out. So it, you may have had a really poor night's sleep, but there could have been a part where you had really high HRV, like good HRV. So it, it hides the fact that you had a poor, whereas when you wake up in the morning, if you had trained really hard the day before, or your jet lag or something like that, you might see like, yeah, it's, it's pretty suppressed today. Yeah. So, I, so I do view them as two important methods. Like they're different, but both important. They both give you a different insight into your, your physiological state. Uh, so, you know, so you go from that, you know, obviously sleep tracking, you can then start looking at the effects of that. And I layer that with other types of data. Like I, I look, if I'm home, I, I, I kind of understand my, my environment, my bedroom. So air quality, temperature, humidity, light, sound, all, all of that. And then, um, you know, things like body composition, it's all, you know, it's going to, you know, the scales are not the super most exact, the body impedance scales, you know, one day, you can't lose 4% body fat in a day, but if you just kind of blur your eyes and stand back and look at the trend over six months, you will see that, the trend, and you can point out where like, oh yeah, look, I, I changed my workout, I was lifting a lot more heavy weights during that month, and you can see the changes there. You know, glucose tracking, I'll do spot checks with like a finger stick if I want yeah. to just be like, um, hey, do a fa like you do a, uh, like a, a fasting reading, so, you know, before you have any food or drink. Uh, ketones as well, you can do that. And then, I, you know, I'll play around throughout the week maybe if I actually want to see like um, glycemic response to certain foods, I, I can do spot checks with, with the, the finger stick. Um, you know, from a, from a ketone measurement, I, for a while I was even testing with like the strips, but then I... I think that works. I think if someone's more keto adapted, actually, it, it might make you look like you're not in ketosis. You're not doing it. Because well, you're ketones. Oh, well, the urine, the strips, because um, your body. Because the urine. Yeah, because you won't be excreting it. If your body's keto adapted, you know this. Are you? Some guys will. Yeah, so, um, sure. Well, basically, like with ketones, there are, there are three ways to measure them. You can do blood, breath, or, uh, or, t or these strips that use urine. And they're different proxies to basically your, your, your levels of ketones in your body. But, um, you know, blood's kind of like the, the best way to, to really measure them. I think you probably use the same meter. There's a meter that, both that I use for the glucose measurements and the ketone measurements. Breath is an interesting one because it's, 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 it's using acetone from your breath. But there's a huge mark. I, I can't get it to get consistent readings because... So I'd, well, I've got like some PhDs looking into this at the moment, and it's it's really tricky. The devices we have for tracking breath ketones at the moment, um, very very tricky uh, to use. So we're really evaluating whether we should continue or not. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll find out. We'll, we keep on digging to try and 
because it appears that the meter actually measures on the phase, and that can interfere with, you know, basically you're getting a combined reading of acetone and something else. Yes. Um, and depending on what you've eaten or your gut bacteria, potentially you're getting a signal and you think you're in ketosis. But yeah, so but even even the, the force of your breath is not super consistent. It's, it's really hard to control. Yeah, and so the blood ketones actually go down over time as you get more keto adapted. So mine have, have gone down, not, not hugely, by about one millimolar. So I used to be like, like maybe nearly four sometimes in the afternoon. Now I'll be more like three or even like 2.5. Wow, that's really, yeah. that's really good. Because <laughs> I'm not gonna say my diet or anything is like a, a keto diet, but I through just my normal diet and kind of periods of like, People call it intermittent fasting. I always wake up in the morning in a state of at least mild nutritional ketosis. So it's you know it's fairly low, mild, but I can shift really easily into yeah. a, a higher state if I just you know fast for a day, let's say, or um, or add you know without taking exogenous um, sources of ketones. Because we yeah. So I don't know if I mentioned I had done some experimentation with like pure ketone esters, right? And but most people are using like athletes will like Tour de France cyclists are using these for like super big energy boosts. It's like um use the ketone aid one. There's a product called ketone aid. Yeah, that was um. Pure beta hydroxybutyrate. So, like, you it is the worst tasting. Like, it's 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 like rocket fuel. So you have to chase it with like a little bit of uh, mineral water or something, just because the taste. It's like really crazy. Wash your mouth out. Yeah, but my testing. So I approached it from. I was like, all these athletes are doing and reporting on the benefits from athletic performance. And I was like, I want to see what it does with cognitive performance. And so I did an experiment around um, just a whole battery of brain sort of cognitive tests where I established like for two weeks, I just got my baselines, I got rid of any learning effects, so the scores, I couldn't yep. get any higher. I was like, I leveled out. It's like, I'm not getting any smarter, better or faster in my reflexes. And I took, and I took this product, like a couple, you know, it's a very small amount, but it's super, super powerful. And within 15 minutes, so if you use a blood um, ketone meter, they only go up to eight millimolars, the, the yeah. upper limit. I, I went, it, you know, it had an error message. <laughs> I blew through it, so I actually, my body was, Based on the dosage, I should have probably taken maybe yeah. half the amount. How did you uh, feel? You're just like, it's just a weird experience. Everything is brighter. Your mind is lit up. I was nervous for like a millisecond because I was like, what is, you know, I kind of feel the gear shifting, like, like our engine's revving up. And, um, but then you're just like, whoa, this is pretty amazing. You're never, your brain is never getting that sort of just flood. I mean, it's pure beta hydroxybutyrate, like getting right into your brain. You're just like, wow. And so what are the results on that? So what you do is because it, you want to, we waited an hour before I did the test. So I took it and I, you know, went off the, off the charts in the meter. Then we waited an hour, so we got back down to it in the range of a, it's around six to seven millimolar was something that's like therapeutic kind of zone. And um, redid all the tests and, and, the, and the battery tests. And every single one, I in, in, immediately increased in my scores over over those baselines. I think these are like tests everything from working memory to uh, speed and, 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 and reflex and all these, like, it's a battery of things. And, but all the scores across the board went up as high as I think something like 35, 40%. I was just like, this is crazy. And I go, I go, this can't be, I don't know, maybe I got adrenaline going or something. But then the next, so then the ketones, you know, they only last, the window of time is four hours. Like, you know, they, you know, by the ESR? Yeah, they, they tail off and you're back to normal. So the next day, I was like, let me go back and do them again with no, no esters. My scores, my baseline scores. So it was a temporary bump in my... Okay, so that's that's interesting because another guy, uh, one of my friends in the UK, he got the Delta G one, which is the one that humans use, and he did a week-long test taking it every day. And it was similar, like the first day, like had all of the, how would you say, anecdotal, like I feel different and everything. Yeah. And um, the other days, it didn't seem to make as much of an impact. Some kind of tolerance or, yeah, it's just, Oh, really? Yeah.
Well, I only took it. I didn't. I wasn't taking any of the esters until like that. I took them once. So it was almost like my. I was going from uh, zero. I went from zero to like. I mistook you. I thought I you were taking it the next. No, step. no, I never took the yeah. esters. So it's not building your brain better. It's a temporary. It's a it's a performance <laughs> enhancer. I would yeah. call it that. Yeah. It's so. You know, it's very expensive. So I would, you know, I think for athletes who like, they're going to use it more often for performance. But for, you know, if I'm going to go on like Jeopardy or something, maybe I'll pop it before I go on the show because I'll, I'll be a little bit more on top of it. So I mean, this is what I do. If I'm going to do some speaking or or something like that, or you know, I got some kind of cognitive task, I'll take uh, keto. Um, keto Kenner is my my favorite, and um, from Keto Sports, so it's the original uh, makers. And uh, yeah, that's. I, I get these these kind of benefits. I really think it is. I've got to do this test. I haven't done the battery testing like you, but you know I should do that because like just anecdotally, I've heard other people talk about it as well. And you can even compare like you could take other you know there's other nootropics and things you can probably stack them against each other and see how you, your performance compared. You know, it's the best thing I've taken. Like a lot of the nootropics, I, I really don't find they impact me and often they have start affecting sleep if I take them chronically and then so that that destroys all values right away. Yeah, and it's not a one size fits all. I mean I, I mean I I know what I don't respond to or respond to and you're gonna be having a very different Yeah everyone's got a, like a different brain chemistry so you've got to be really careful with that. Totally. Alright. So we're gonna wind up because we've got other stuff coming. Yeah. Is there anything you haven't spoken about that's really cool or like anything you want to say? Anything cool? Well I think you know from the uh, the quantified aspects of things. You now, I, I do think there's some cool advances happening, and some some of what we can be measuring today. Like I was just inside this event, and I was getting my face thermal imaged, and they basically it's, it's interesting to see how technology is always getting married with like Chinese medicine and stuff. So we're always going back to these things that have been around, but they seem woo because you couldn't quantify them. And now you're able, you know, so imagine getting a thermal image, you know, like Predator, that movie Predator, you look like, you know, you look like Predator. Yeah, and you're lit up, so you see hot spots and cold spots, and so they did my face. And they could sell it. I had just gotten arrived off the plane, and they could see like I had stuff in, like my throat was all irritated. They saw my nasal passages were not done. But then they could map the Chinese acupuncture points, and they actually showed like where I maybe had some poor digestion happening and stuff just by looking with a thermal camera. And I'm just like, wow, this is like cool. And like now that you can actually put this to data, and and these are things that like quick spot. You know, it took literally 15 seconds to do the scan. It's like a spot you can stand in front of a camera, a thermal imaging camera. It provides the data. You know, I'm experimenting with other modalities that are you know, coming from Europe or, or, or stuff that was maybe from the Soviet Union that um, was used for athletes for years. And um, it was definitely a, it was definitely a, uh, you know, it's cool to experiment with some of these things. Yeah, sorry about that. So, you know, things, so things that get me excited, I mean, it's all about being able to learn even more about ourselves in, in the least intrusive ways and, and getting actual insights out of this stuff. So, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, I've definitely gone and tested lots of things. There's been a lot of, you know, dead ends and things where I'm like, this is cool, but is it something, is it, is, is the benefit worth it? Like, there might be things where I'm just like, it's a hassle and I'm not getting enough out of it for... A lot of it's like, you do projects, you add stuff, you kind of retest it for a while, and then you eliminate, you start cutting stuff. And you, it's this constant process of like, push forward, add some things, remove more things, you know, and. To, to kind of get to this stuff that actually is worthwhile. Yeah, so like, you know, the, the analogy I make with like biohacking and self-quantified self is like, not all biohackers or types are, would call themselves self-quantifiers. They're just gonna say like, I just, I'll try 20 things and I feel amazing. And I don't really care about isolating what, maybe there's only one of those things that actually really contributed to it, but they're not really in, interested in isolating it. They're just like, I'll just do everything. Whereas on the quantification side, maybe they're like, well, instead of taking 20 things or doing 20 different things, if there's two or three I can do that I get 90% of the benefit from, 
I'll do that. Ninety-nine percent yeah. of the benefit with least effort is that's efficiency. This is why it's really worth cycling off anything. You know, you yeah. just stop it for a month. Absolutely, yeah. In structure experiments, you always do like a either an ABA test or well, it's repeat, right? I really find value in the repetition. Basically, you know, you cycle on, you cycle off, you cycle on, you cycle off, you cycle on. You do that those four times, and you you can have a pretty clear signal. Absolutely, yeah. I mean. And it's not like you know constructing. You know, we're all single subject experiments, so you know you don't have to worry about the scientific rigor of like you're not in like, a, like you're doing as long as you as long as it works for you. Yeah, who cares? It's like an n equals one. Like I mean, ultimately that's what we're out for. Um, so we're not doing science for for everyone. It may be useful as a case study for someone else to then go and do some science. But the most important thing is it just actually works for us. Yes, no, I agree, hundred percent. Okay, so where can people find you? Just a reminder, like where are you most active? Where would you tell people to reach sure. out? Sure. So, Quantified Bob, you can go to quantifiedbob.com. Uh, any social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Quantified Bob. You can email me, bob at quantifiedbob.com. And, um, I see some. and, I'm, I'm in the, the, if you're ever in New York City or want to start playing around with some of these cool uh, tools and training and recovery tools, um, if you go to uh, optimal, optml.co, optimal. Co. Um, you can start seeing some some of the things I'm doing up there with some of the oxygen training and some recovery tools, and that'll be be, be built out over the next uh, month or so. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for your time, and uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing you at a number of events soon. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. It's been so great hanging out with you, yeah. reconnecting, and, and um, looking forward to the rest of the event. So. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, thanks. Turn you guys off. See you later. Hey there, congratulations on getting to the end of a Quantified Body Marathon episode. I don't know about you, but I had a lot of questions coming out of uh, this conference and all the discussions I had. It was a good intro to kind of get the lay of the land, but I have a lot of questions, particularly before I would uh, consider actually experimenting with any of these tools that were discussed. So here are some of my first questions. I'm putting them out there so that if you have any thoughts yourself, you can perhaps add your comments or your questions to the blog and we can have a bit of a discussion around this because I think there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of different things to tackle and uh, topics to explore in this area. And it's really, for me, this is like a first episode of uh, many future episodes. Uh, This is an important topic to me and I think an important topic to everyone. And it's going to be more and more interesting in the next years. So here are some of my questions that I have after this episode. The first area is really understanding the risk profile of some of these tools to make sure that there is no huge downside, basically, to the use of any of these tools that we are completely unaware of, some blind spots there. In particular, there's a couple of uh, ones that I'm interested in trying to understand that risk profile better. So that would be senolytics is number one. My questions are, how can we evaluate the risk profile of some of these different senolytics? Who should take them? Who should not? Uh, what age should you be? What, at what age does it become? The upside becomes more useful than the potential downside. How, what is the track record in the use of some of these? Do we really understand them? Even the ones like some of the antibiotics and so on, or the chemo-based drugs that have been used for a while, you know, potentially we don't understand all of the long-term effects of these. You know, on my journey in the quantified body, I've kind of learned that we are still learning a lot about the body and we are learning 
and our, our ability to quantify and get data on aspects of our biology is still very limited. I expect this area to be transformed in the next 50 years with just the amount of data and understanding that we can actually process. So for now, I consider that most of our biology is not being tracked, where we don't have data on it, and it's just a big kind of black hole that we don't, we don't know anything about. So with my, my concerns with these things are, is there something going on which could present some long-term damage that we're not aware of? How can we ensure that we're preferentially killing just senescent cells and not doing some other kind of damage? So that's a topic I'm interested in understanding more before I potentially experiment with this myself. The second one would be in the area of young plasma. And I think this is very, very similar in my concerns. My, my main concern here is with blood transfusions in general. If you're not in a critical state, so if you, know, you haven't had, just had a car accident and it's really life or death, you need a transfusion to survive, then what is the you know, risk profile of having a transfusion, a blood transfusion? I believe that we aren't able to screen for all of the pathogens in the blood currently. If you look at some of the more advanced labs, which are trying to look into this area, like aperiomics, which I discussed in the last episode, episode 51 for the microbiome, aperiomics does analysis against its database of pathogens, which it's still building for all types of samples, urine, uh, blood, and stool. They're finding things that they didn't expect. So I do believe that, you know, the blood samples we have today, they're screened for a lot of the most important infections we know of, HIV and things like that. But there's potentially many that they're not aware of that could lead to chronic disease later in life or chronic issues in the long term, and we're just not aware of them. So I feel like there's a risk profile there to establish on blood. If you're going to have a transfusion of younger blood, then how do you ascertain that there's nothing in that that could present some issues in the longer term and thus negate those uh, young healing benefits from the young blood? So that's understanding the risk profile better in particular, separating out any larger downsides rather that we may be exposing ourselves to and we're unaware of. The second area is really trying to understand the benefits and the upside of making an effort, investing money in these kind of treatments or these tools. Um, so really understanding the ROI, is it worth our time? And the, the two which would fit more into that category right now, I think, are rapamycin, because this is available now, you can get this. What kind of uh, protocol could you put in place? Uh, what kind of experiment could you do? What biomarkers could you be testing in order to understand, you know, over a year, over two years, is this having any benefit to you? Um, and is it worthwhile from a cost and effort perspective and so on? Or potentially some of the uh, side effect downsides also, you have to take those into account. So would it be worth it to you? And then the other one is NAD, which has received a lot of press over the last couple of years or so because there's been nicotinamide or riboside, NR, which has been on the market, uh, been popularized a lot by the company Elysium Health in the form of its supplement basis, uh, which you may have heard of. But how worthwhile is NAD supplementation really? There's a little bit of a conflict around this in terms of the discussion, the scientific discussion around it. How interesting is it? How beneficial is it? And uh, given the cost of these supplements currently, so someone who I did meet at the conference who I thought and I interviewed for the video live but isn't in this audio episode is Maria um, Entregas Abramson, who's worked with SENS Research Foundation a long time and has also just brought out a test for NAD levels, which is a biomarker to help establish if this is, uh, if taking nicotinamide riboside is having an impact on your NAD plus levels. You could get a baseline, 
and you could get some other tests down the line to see if your the value of that has actually changed. The name of that test is Life Bridge Test. Uh, by the time this episode's out, that could be out. So that might be uh, something worth looking at, uh, getting a baseline, and then tracking that if you're going to you know, invest in taking NAD and trying to raise your NAD plus levels. Those are some of the questions I have. Some of the bigger questions and the ones I'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, looking more into to understand you know, if it's worth doing any of these in the shorter term. And of course, I'll be going to some other conferences in the near future. Uh, one in Berlin in uh, March 2019 is Undoing Aging, uh, which I'm going to. And uh, there, are, there are some others, summer events and more events uh, taking place. So you can expect uh, some more updates on these technologies and potentially some self-experiments if I decide that one of them has a reasonable risk profile and uh, I can track some of the upside benefits there. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on these questions, if you have any, or if you have ideas, any clear ideas on them, or references, of course. Uh, we like references. Or if you have your own questions about these, please post them in the comments of this episode on the blog. I'd love to hear from you. So you can do that by going to dequantifiedbody.net and uh, then pick out the episode there and uh, comment on it. That's it from me for this episode. I'll talk to you again soon in episode 53. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.